Well, hi everybody, welcome to Stratosphere Lounge. Off to a bit of a choppy start tonight, uh, for reasons beyond my control. <sighs> I have uh, the studio, this very studio that you're looking at right now. Uh, I'm your host, Bill Little. Welcome to Stratosphere Lounge. And uh, we have a, a dead-end street here. And at the end of the dead-end street is a school. And usually once a day, right around 4... I guess it happens in the morning too. I don't see it in the morning. Uh, right around four or so, uh, all of the parents come to pick up the kids in their SUVs. And because it's a dead end, there's no flu traffic. Flu traffic, no through traffic. So that can slow things down a little bit. Uh, as it turns out, it's not uh, four. It was about six o'clock, about 15 minutes ago. Uh, and I was just about to pull into the studio, into the parking lot here and get the thing going when uh, I realized, you know, half mile away, something's going on. Uh, so I don't know if it's a special event or anything, but because of the nature of the, the street here, so it's a, it's a T intersection, right? Let's see if I can do this uh, backwards. So uh, down here is the school, dead end. So any cars that are going to make a right turn onto that street, they just make a, a right turn. But the people who are coming from across the intersection have to go across the intersection. And it's so slow getting down to this uh, end of the dead end and then turning around and coming back out again. And the cars are backed up so much that if the people on the other side of the uh, intersection don't jump on the green light, then they will never get there. The people making the right turn will just continue to do it. So two or three cars always go out into the intersection and then they stop there because they're waiting for the line to move and that gridlocks the entire intersection. And then it's just, it was just crazy. And I've never seen it like this before. So anyway, uh, what finally happened was I just finally went down, uh, just went down a street and just parked the car and ran my butt over here. And here we are. Uh, anyway, uh, good to be here. Good to see everybody. Uh, already in the comment section, we're getting what we got uh, last time that uh, need to go see Top Gun, and, and I believe we will be uh, doing that. Maverick's been getting great reviews, uh, such good reviews that Scott Ott, him very self, him very self, uh, made that his um, right angle show for the week. I had something interesting to point out. Duh obviously. Um, no, and that's simply this. Uh, there's been a lot of comments about how good the movie is and how pro-American it is. What, what, what's interesting about Top Gun to me is that the original was made just before computer graphics got good enough to put into feature films, just before, and 30 some odd years pass. And now, they make this movie without computer graphics because in the intervening three decades or nearly four decades or whatever, CGI has taken the place of everything. And I hate those CGI people. Uh, but what, what apparently, I, I haven't seen it yet, we'll probably go in the next couple of days. But what apparently makes Top Gun so believable is uh, it was not shot using uh, CGI. Now there's a couple of shots where they put in CGI, but it's the use of CGI and that, and how CGI is used that's become absolutely um, intolerable. So I'll just give you this real quick. Then I'll show you some CGI just a little bit, and then we'll get going. 
Um, so here's the, here's the thing. When you when you're shooting, when you're shooting a practical movie, like take for example, there's two examples. Uh, one of them is is Patton. The, the tanks are not accurate in Patton, but they're real tanks. A, a better example is the Battle of Britain, a, a movie that was made in '66, I want to say, with Laurence Olivier. So they found some uh, some ME109s that were in the Spanish Air Force or something. It's 20 years after the war when they made this thing. And they're not the same kind. They've got like a big kind of a bulbous thing underneath the nose. So anybody who knows what you're doing can say that's kind of an ME109, but the, but the, uh, you know, the, the, um, so it looks enough like an ME109 to be an ME109 because it is an ME109, but that, that addition on the later model just blows it for me. Anyway, so you've got, so you've got to shoot this movie, Battle of Britain 66, you can either use miniatures which means forget about it, or you can shoot real air-to-air. And when you shoot real air-to-air, you are limited in terms of the kind of shots you can get by fundamental safety concerns of not crashing into the guys who are really real live out there flying um, the camera plane. And this is why so many modern movies feel so hollow. It's not just because they have a lot of CGI shots. It's because they employ CGI in a, in a very childish way. The classic example of this is you see, an, uh, let's say you're, you're watching a, a, an action flick and a truck overturns on the freeway and a tire comes loose and the tire goes doing, 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 and just you know, either misses you by a quarter inch or, or hits the camera, right? Well, you, you can never get that shot in real life. Somebody said, ooh, we can use this in CGI now. So you watch, you watch every, virtually everything that's got CGI in it has these things where these things come so close to the camera and then they do a little artificial camera shake, you know, shake, 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 shake. Okay. It, it, it takes you out, whether you realize it or not, as, uh, as uh, Plunkett famously said, uh, here, Scott, this is for you. See this, see this thing? Um, you may not notice it, but your brain does. So, so when directors had this tool, right? They said, "Ooh, so we can get like really close to the planes." Well, yeah. So we we have one that go right past us, like by an inch away. Uh, yeah. Oh well, let's do that. So that's what they. You can't get shots like that, and and your brain knows it. So that's why they look so and feel so fake and if the and if the dog fights in a movie about dog fighting feels fake then you're not fully into the movie and just and by the way isn't a difference between looking between something looking fake and something looking good some of these things look tremendous but you just can't do it and I, and i have always said throughout this entire period honestly the entire period i've said if you're going to use cgi for airplanes then shoot shoot the CGI scenes as if you were shooting them from another airplane. Don't indulge in these childish, you know, infantile kind of things, right? Don't, don't, don't give me this. Give me, if you want to show a tank or something, instead of, instead of having the, the you know, the, the, the nozzle of the tank come right down, it's just like, just, just show it in the distance, you know, or show it on the, on the fenders or something. And so that's, you know, that's what, um, that's why so many of these things feel bad. So the first uh, Top Gun movie, 
didn't have CGI. And then Tom Cruise, I don't know whether it's Cruise or the director, obviously Cruise had a lot to do with it, uh, had, the, had the good sense to realize that after 30 years of watching CGI effects, he realized that, that there was something missing. And I talked about this on, on the right angle too. Uh, when when Tom Cruise was doing his nutty, you know, jumping up on the couch kind of thing, and and when he was doing that, you know, um, that Scientology thing where he was being interviewed, and you know, only a Scientologist would stop for an injured person, you know, like that whole routine. I thought this guy's barking mad. I can't stand him. <clears throat> and then over the course of the years, my uh, my opinion of him has increased dramatically, uh, and I'm sure it'll be higher after watching uh, Maverick. Um, in any event, uh, Eric tells me my big beef about him, uh, doing the flyby is not accurate. He says he doesn't land the plane after being told the pattern is full. The point of the sequence is this flyby. He doesn't land right there. He was not given permission to do the flyby. He disregarded the posi- the, the, the lack of permission and did it anyway, right? So the, the point stands. Um, in any event, uh, what started improving my opinion of Tom Cruise was, when I found out he flew a P-51 Mustang, which he apparently owned. Uh, he, he is, I, I believe he does have a P-51. I know he's an accomplished pilot, and P-51 is not exactly a user-friendly. So that got my, at least got my respect. And then over the years, watching him do the stunts that he did um, really impressed me, you know? I mean, really. Uh, when you see some of those stunts like the ones on Burj Dubai and you, you realize that that's actually him. See, this is the thing about Tom Cruise or, or whoever's doing these kind of things. You can set up a shot so that you've got a stuntman running down the side of the Burj Dubai. You can do that, right? And you just, you just make sure you're far enough away so that you can't really see that it's not Tom Cruise. It's a guy who looks a lot like Tom Cruise, but you're not close enough to see. But if you've got a guy who's willing to do the special effects, I mean, the, the stunts, then you can get close enough to say, my God, that's actually Tom Cruise hanging there. And when you realize it's actually Tom Cruise hanging there, you get much more invested. So anyway, since he's a pilot, I think uh, on some, some point or another, he realized, uh, or somebody on the movie realized um, a simple fact, and that is that uh, fighter, uh, fi- flying a fighter aircraft is an extraordinarily extraordinarily physically demanding and stressful um, uh, occupation. Um, the uh, Certainly with things like the F-16, the, the, the ability of the plane to turn is not limited by the airplane's aerodynamics, it's limited by how many Gs the pilot can take. The F-16 was notable for being the first uh, uh, fighter to have like a highly reclined seat. And that allowed the pilots to take more G's because when you're, you know, the G's always go down if you're in a circle, it's a centrifugal force. But, but in any event, by reclining the seat, they reduced the, the, the gradient on, on the G-force, which is acting down. So you black out because the, the high G-forces basically cause the blood flow out of your brain. Um, and historically, uh, fighter pilots have used things, they used to call it a poopy suit, I don't know if it's still anymore, it's called a G-harness now. But basically they have these, they wear these things that look kind of like um, like, leg, like leggings, like something a cowboy would wear. And they get into the jet, they plug it into the jet, and, uh, uh, and pneumatic air pressure 
automatically inflates these things tight around your thighs when, when you start pulling a high G maneuver. And the more Gs you pull, the, the more it inflates them. And what that's doing is literally squeezing your legs so that the blood cannot flow down into them. Uh, and, and when you put these things together, you end up with, you know, with that. And, and one final technique, there's a, a technique of breathing where you take a breath and you almost, you almost force it to, like that. All of these things together allow uh, fighter pilots to take on um, more Gs than they used to, but they're still limited to nine, and they're limited to nine for just a few seconds. After more than nine, you know, a couple seconds at nine, nine, nine Gs is an incredible, is an incredible, but the plane can't, you know, can't maintain a turn. Anyway, 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 you take a lot of G-forces when you're flying uh, aerobatics of any kind. And when I saw the trailer for Maverick the very first time, I realized, okay, they're shooting this in real airplanes because you can, if you look at the first one, I'm in combat, but you look at the new one and you can see the G-forces pulling him down. When he comes off the carrier, that kind of sudden kind of thing, can't fake that. So um, anyway, that's it. And, and uh, you know, a real problem for fighter pilots is something called a G-lock, a G-induced loss of consciousness, where you'll pull and pull and pull and pull and pull until you pass out. And then you pass out and you're out for five, 10 seconds, maybe a little longer. That's plenty of time for you to go right in the ground. And um, I think the F-16 also was the first aircraft to have uh, uh, something would basically, the plane would recover itself. So anyway, uh, so it, all these comments about that we haven't done a single question yet, but we did a question. Uh, it sounds like it's great. I've heard it is the most um, unapologetically American movie. I've heard that it's just really pro-military and, and that grown men cry and and uh, all of that. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing it very much. And, and, and it's making a ton of money, which is yet another data point on the theory that I have and several others have that no matter how much they try to shove this woke stuff down our throats, those movies fail. That's obvious. And the defense was, well, nobody goes sees the movies anymore. Well, maybe, but maybe, maybe not. Um, you know, maybe people will go see a movie if you don't uh, make it into a, uh, a bludgeon uh, for your political beliefs. Uh, maybe they'll go see the movie then. Who knows? It seems to be the case. Anyway, I'm happy that it's doing well. I'm, I'm happy that they held it. Uh, and I'm happy that um, that it's out there showing Hollywood, you know, that, yeah, this, this can actually work, you idiots. Okay, so um, in other news, uh, before we uh, jump into the questions here, so I had an interesting situation uh, that I had to deal with uh, last week. Uh, it's a high-class high problem, as Peter Gruby used to say when I worked on Sunday Morning Shootout. Um, so I got a call last week on Thursday morning from uh, Mike Rose, producer, and said, hey, we've got a guest who had to back out at the last minute, um, and, uh, and can you uh, sit in and do the show? We wanted to do a Memorial Day show, and we said, who can talk about, you know, military and stuff? And they go, oh, Bill, let's get, let's get Bill to do it. So they asked me to do it, and I love doing that show. I, I nearly said no, and the reason I almost said no was because I was planning on contacting them about a week or two from that that day to show them this animation thing I've been working on forever and talking about forever. And 
when they said, can you do the show? I realized if I do the show, I'm going to be taking that slot. They can't have me back on, you know, a week later or two weeks later. But a bird in the hand is one thing. And, 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 and that wasn't what decided it for me. What decided it for me was I just really like Mike. I, I like Chuck. I like the producer. I like the show. I like doing the show. So I was happy to do it. And they were kind enough to promote the, um, the animation project. But I realized by, so we shot that show Thursday afternoon. By Saturday night, I think, Saturday night, yeah, I realized I got nothing to show. Mike's going to push people to the website, hopefully, and he did a great job of promoting it. And people are going to come to the website and hear about this big animation project, and there ain't going to be nothing there. And that was a, uh, a an actual real problem. So I thought, well, I can spend the next 12 hours trying to get this thing as close to finished as I can, but there'll still be shots missing and stuff like that. I didn't really want to do that at all. I had to have something there. I didn't want to just put up a post, you know. So um, what I did was I uh, I kind of improvised. Um, it wasn't a question about... I showed Mike what I already have. I showed Mike and Chuck what I already have. It wasn't showing Mike what I had was the problem. It was having that be the only thing on the website for people. I didn't want the public to see it unfinished. So uh, so I had to, you know, so here's my choices. Put up something that's half finished. Didn't want to do that. It's way more than half finished, but it wasn't, there were holes in it, right? So no. Um, not have anything, that's unacceptable. Put up a post, that's kind of weak. And so I basically just said, hey man, I'm going to, I'm just going to have to, I can do the, the, um, motion capture, facial motion capture real fast. And since uh, the project is in Unreal 4, but Unreal 5 is out, I thought, well, okay, hang on. Let me get, um, let me get, crack out Unreal. I'll crack out, I'll find the best uh, asset I can, and I'll do just a little little talk thing, you know, just, hey, you know, we're almost there and, and so on. So, um, uh, and then, um, so I did it, and I did the whole thing in about 11 hours. And uh, most of that time was lighting the set and, and putting the moving ships in there. But I got to tell you, I think the science fiction asset is fantastic. Unreal 5 is astonishing. And given the fact that I did one take on the, on the um, vocals and the lip sync, I thought the lip sync was pretty good too. So uh, I've got this here. If you haven't seen it, I'll show it to you real quick, and then we will immediately move on into, um, into the questions. So. So here's what I put up on the um, on the website at BillWhittle.com for people who might be coming from the Micro Show, and uh, the 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 wide shot, the main shot, all of all of the sci-fi walking shots took about um, took me about 11 hours, I guess, start to finish, from the time I sat down to the time I uh, did the output. All right, so um, here it comes. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome. We're uh, just a few days away from releasing our long-awaited uh, animation proof of concept called uh, D is for Dungeon, an American Allegory. Uh, it features my friend Alfonso Rachel and I as a pair of knights who are surveying scenes of awful desolation, trying to track down the people that did it. I won't give the ending away and tell you who it is, but I can tell you that the kingdom has no southern border. Uh, that it's guarded by legions of snitches, and that the residents consist of things like the fatally open-minded or the willfully blind, that kind of thing. 
We've also got a whole bunch of science fiction that's uh, on the sidelines ready to go. So if you're visiting from the Mike Rowe Show, uh, we're very glad to have you. You can check out the membership options, which are listed below. And if you want to make a one-time donation, you can do that too. We'll be having a full-on pitch for you in about uh, just, just a few more days and we'll have it finished. So until then, thanks for uh, coming by. And if you can help out with that, with that uh, donation, especially on the PayPal button, you know, this, this stuff is expensive. It, it, it takes a lot of money to keep this kind of gear going. Ta-da! Um, so, uh, yeah, um, Marisha said I should edit a trailer for that, but frankly, the, the finished product is, is so close. It'd take me more time to edit the trailer than it would to actually get this done. Um, so, uh, is that mouth actually moving? Uh, yes. Um, and, uh, and, and I just want to stress, again, for the sake of it, because the argument is not the animation. The argument is the viewing numbers. But with that said, thank you for the kind words. Um, that walking down the, you know, down the uh, spaceport thing is one guy in 10 hours who's not really, you know, terrific at it. I mean, I, I know what I want in terms of looks, but I'm not a professional animator, so... It just goes to show you what you can accomplish and how much you can get done if, if you had a little bit of resources and stuff. And um, and I just thought it looked I thought it looked really pretty good considering. And since the long term goal is science fiction, we talked about that a little bit on the mic show, so I thought I might as well throw in that too. But the main thing was getting a chance to um, uh, to use the Unreal Five renderer for uh, those um, spaceship exteriors. Uh, 5708 Rivera, Rivera says your learning curve on this has accelerated yes it has actually thank you and when you see the finished product I look back on the you know the first stuff I think I showed you guys was um, the two guys just walking through the forest you know with the torch and now it's like pfft. some of these shots are really really better uh, yes and, and uh, he, he spelled it accelerated and, and uh, George says accelerated as opposed to accelerated accelerated is not a word but it should be um, Dragon Tail says that uh, he does CGI in Daz 3D isn't that interesting because I used Daz for the first year almost I think a year uh, and then I realized um, I can't uh, I just couldn't do any animation serious animation yet um, but in any event, uh, it could be um, very, uh, very good. Um, and, and I've been thinking about something else too, you know. Um, and this is not directly related to animation. This is a little more general, so hopefully some of you will stay with us. Uh, and that's the distribution thing, right? Um, I find... That and I'm on the older end of the uh, YouTube uh, viewership spectrum. I watch nothing but YouTube. That's all I do. It's just watch nothing but YouTube. Everything I see is on YouTube. All the best content I've ever seen is on YouTube. I just now found a new channel and three hours of interviews on you know real crime things and stuff, and I'm just riveted by it. And just everything. It's like I'll see a, a listing for something that says Titanic sinking in real time. 
okay, let's watch that. And there's about an hour there where nothing happens. So the Titanic took two hours to sink and uh, 2.15, I want to say two hours, 15 minutes. And for an hour and 15 of that, nothing happens. Um, and then, it, then things happen real fast. Um, but it occurred to me, you know, if if you um, if you're able to crowd if you're able to crowdsource this thing, then you don't really need a distributor. And I'm looking at some of these views and trying to calculate what the ad revenues on YouTube would be. And and in, you know, the, start getting into you certainly need to be in the millions of views. But if you do get into millions of views, then you can start looking at serious you know revenues. And um, and I think uh, I think that it it would be possible to essentially say we've got this much money to make this season. We've got it. We don't have to recoup it because it because there's no way to get it. it. I'm just speculating, right? So I, I, there's probably a lot of bad ideas at play here, but. That's how you find out what the good ideas are. But just from a from like a loosely hypothetical point of view, if you found enough people who, who wanted to pitch in for a good science fiction story and got $10 million, let's say. Uh, yeah, I've seen Chilixilub in, in, in real time. That's kind of cool too. Uh, and you could do that. Then if you had, you raise your money up front, not only do you not have to monetize it to get the money back to the investors, you can't. There's no way to get money back to the people that put money into it, and they don't expect money back. What they expect and hope for is some 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 good entertainment. Um, so if you were to do that, you could essentially make it for the fans, and that's really exciting to me. You know, really exciting to me. It would live forever if it's on YouTube, and if you and more and more people are are, are watching stuff online that, that, that certainly in the animation pitch for you know old conservatives to put money into something that young people will see you know the, the young people don't go to movies anymore you know and and to the degree that they do anything mass media they either play video games or they watch other people playing video games they do this on youtube to some degree on twitch um so um the the you know the the idea that it that it could live on youtube and and essentially be pre-monetized is interesting. And I'm gonna say something uh, that I, a lesson I learned from watching from afar. Um, because not only was I real active in playing Star Citizen for a couple of years, but I dove deep into that entire project <clears throat> and and its failures and, and, and what succeeded and what didn't. And this is gonna sound uh, hard to believe, and and it will require some discipline. But stay with me on this. So the original Kickstarter pitch for Star Citizen, I want to say, was for like six hundred thousand, six hundred fifty thousand dollars, something like that. And and the server crashes, and they wake up, you know, and they get that thing going. Next thing you know, he's got it like a million five. It's like we got three times practically what we wanted. Hooray! Fantastic! And the money kept coming in. And it kept coming in. And after a while, it got to the point where they they took it off of Kickstarter and just and and just started their own website and the money kept coming in. Now this is what I learned from watching how Star Citizen happened. The more money they took in, 
the bigger the project became, and the bigger the project became, the more money they'd take in. And it got to be this feedback loop where now they have essentially all the money ever needed and they don't do anything, right? They've, ta they've raised in excess of $400 million has come into Star Citizen. $400 million. They still don't have an economy. They still have people falling through floors. The fundamentals, the basics aren't there. The server, the, the, you know, it's supposed to be a massively multiplayer online game. The, the server cap is 50 players, and it has been for five years. And they keep talking about the Jesus tech that's going to come to allow all this to happen, and I hope it does. I genuinely do, but I don't think it will. I don't think it's possible. So what can we learn from this? Well, we can learn that if you are, if you are continually bringing in money and you haven't really delivered product yet, to, to, to be fair to them, they've got an alpha out there. And I've had a blast on, uh, with that alpha. I had a blast. I really, it's been tremendous. But it is nothing like what it claimed it was going to be, and I don't think it's ever going to be. So to make a long story short, it occurred to me that the thing to do would be to find out how much money you needed to do it right. And, when, and if you make that target, then you stop. Because I think if the money continues to come in after that, you will find a way to spend it. And, and what you'll do is you'll, you'll just feature creep the thing out. And it will never end. And, and there's no reason to end it, by the way. One of the things that I think is, a, is the case with Star Citizen is every year they bring in more money. And so if, if it turns out that every year in development you're bringing in more money, then, then you're not really making a game. What you're making is... The, the development is the product, right? And so why would you, why would you, why would you change, why would you deliver something? I'm not saying they're not trying to deliver it, but I'm saying if you, if you bring in more and more and more money every single year out of developing the game, then where's your incentive to get it out the door? So it occurred to me that if you, if you figured out that you hear your, hear your first six episodes or 10 episodes in season one, right? And, and let's say for the sake of the argument, you want $15 million to make a, a season of 10 episodes and you got it budgeted and you've got some, you know, you've got some elastic in there and in the budget, people are getting paid, you know, and all the rest of it. So, so that it occurred to me that the thing to do would be to basically upfront say, listen, we need $15 million for the first season. If we get to $15 million, we're going to shut it down. And if you want, and if you want more, then hold that thought because we're going to come back for for a second season and then we'll come back for a third season and and the thing and you can have the confidence of knowing that you, you put up your money for the first season and we delivered a first season you that's kind of important so i'll tell you i'll tell you who the model is for me now the the economic model the sales model all of it and that is um that is uh the product of a guy who I didn't know super well, but who I, who, you know, I went to a bunch of those meetings with, and um, and that's Dallas and um, Dallas Jenkins and um, and the Chosen, right? So here's a here's a guy that basically went out and pitched a a, a, a series about Jesus, episodic series about Jesus, and he raised I don't know what the number was, fifteen million or something, delivered. And not only did he deliver, he over-delivered. I, I have not had a chance to see that all the way through, but I've seen a lot of clips. And that is not just good Christian television. That's not just good uh, 
church rating, that's just damn good TV. And, and, and the scripts are excellent. And the acting is top, top notch. And I have to tell you, I think, I think, I think 80% of, of what's on the screen, not what happens on the back end, but 80% of what's on the screen is, is the casting. The, the guy who they the, the guy who they got to play Jesus and I don't know his name will show up in a, in a moment here is perfect and he's and he's perfect because on one hand he's so ordinary I mean he's not he's not this angelic looking guy and at the same time there is a nobility in him and a charisma there that you can't fake you have the, the actor has to have that. But then, but then uh, G.K. Masterson says, I won't watch Christian films or shows because they're crap, completely unidimensional. It's exactly what I thought too. And then I sat down and I said, I should at least watch one clip out of this. Next thing you know, I'm binge watching clips from The Chosen. It's just that good entertainment. It's not good Christian entertainment, it's just good entertainment. And, and the, first ep- the first clip I saw from The Chosen was a clip where they're at the pool and there's this, uh, this crippled guy and, and he probably ends up being one of the disciples. Uh, and he and he wants to get into this magical healing pool, and Jesus just comes up to him and says, "So, do you want to be healed?" And and the thing about the thing about Jesus was, yes, Eric got it. It's the humor that, that it's like he's he's got a sense of humor. He's not, you know, he's not Bobby Bittman. He's not the Hawaii. He's but but he's but he's he's got such warmth and strength, and he doesn't just give you the easy answer, you know. He, 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 but when he finally heals people. These people are overjoyed, and you can see that he's overjoyed too. And all of this stuff makes that show work. So, I don't know the exact numbers, I just have the, sh- the shadow of it. But basically, Dallas goes out there and says, look, here's, here's, a, here's a, a, a need, okay? Here's, a, here's a, a, we're, we're coming at you with a product, and here's our market. They're, they're, this is a country with an awful lot of Christians in it, and there is no content for them. And this is the most important thing in many people's lives. And I'm telling you, as one of those people, Dallas speaking now, as a devout Christian and as a filmmaker, see, that's the thing, not as a devout Christian who'd like to get into filmmaking, as a guy who knows what he's doing. I think if we had some money, I could deliver this show, and, and this is what we want to do. So he got the money, so he did it. And, and he did it so well on the first season Again, these numbers are off the top of my head, but something along the lines of he asked for like 15 million for the first season, got it. Second season, I think he asked for 35, 38, something like that. Um, so, well, you know, G.K. Masterson says, that's everything I've seen about every Christian must see thing pass. Okay, then pass, fine, pass. But you haven't seen it, so when you do eventually get to see it and you realize how good it is, then then maybe you'll you'll be wondering why you why you had that attitude ab- about things, you know? Honestly, pass. Okay, pass. You're missing out. Um, in any event, that's the that's the kind of thing that that I think is the future. Is is the the days of of having, you know. 20 million eyeballs watching something on Thursday night on NBC are way behind us. Um, and, uh, well, and, and some of the comments are to each other, not to you. Well, then you should send them privately because I'm constantly looking at the comment section and that's the, kind of the first thing I see. Um, anyway, 
it occurs to me that you could put yourself in the same situation. You could basically say to the, to the hard sci-fi audience out there, look, uh, you're not getting anything. You're, you're settling for things like the, you know, the expanse and stuff, which are somewhat in that direction, but you're still, you know, you're not getting anything. And uh, here's why I'm uniquely capable of doing this, and I'm gonna, and this is what we want to do: start out with a budget, start out small, get the money, and at that point, you just shut it down and deliver the product. And if you can deliver the product, then you can go back for the second year and ask for more. And if you continue to do this right, and you have your standards and, and you produce quality product, there's no reason that that has to end. It doesn't have to end with my demise or anything else. It just never ends. You know, you just basically crowdsource the whole thing. And there's a huge hole in the culture there. Um, so, uh, yes, uh, no magic. That's, that's it. Um, and I'm watching, you know, what was I watching? Um, no, I was watching somebody, I was watching some Star Wars uh, fan fiction. Um, well, that's interesting. Rusha says, Bill, something just occurred to me. You're competing against conservatives' learned helplessness as we've been operating from a position of scarcity for so long. Learned helplessness. Now, that's a, that's a profoundly interesting uh, term. Um, but, but anyway, you know, Look, I'm not dropping uh, names here because he mentioned this on the air. Uh, I told Mike on the air roughly what I wanted to do, and he said, well, I'd like to be a part of that. Well, okay, Mike, you can be. And, and, not only, and not only can you be, we'll pay you to be, right? If you're going to do this right, you have to have enough money to pay people. You have to have enough money to pay the animators, enough money to pay the actors. You have to have enough money to pay me, and you have, especially me. And you have to have all of that stuff. And then you, you deliver one season and then you go let me tell you what the advantage of this is from my personal point of view right anything that requires a distributor and you're not a distributor means that when all is said and done they have control over your product and they they especially have the kill switch right they can say well we've done enough of this that's what they did with the expanse that's why the final season of expanse felt so disappointing was you know, six episodes and so yeah we're done well, we're done with it we're done okay uh, I, i'm not a super huge fan of the expanse but i don't see any reason why the expanse couldn't have continued on forever except for the fact that the people who were paying the money for it said well we're done if they'd gotten the money for the expanse from the fans of the show then they keep doing it forever i'll tell you what else was something along these lines way before crowdfunding because there was no internet. But Babylon 5 had, had a very unusual, um, had an unusual uh, genesis and an unusual lifetime. Um, but, look, I, I've been trying to get movies made for virtually my entire life. I'm 63 and I've been trying to do this since I was 16. So I've had some uh, ups and downs with this. And, and, and really when it comes down to it, when it comes down to it, it's all actually extremely, extremely simple. If you want to keep doing this, if you want to do something and do it again, then you have to make more money than it costs, right? If you come to somebody with, as an investor or, or as a crowdfunder or whatever, we, we took $5 million and we turned it into 
$50 million, or we turned it into $10 million, or we turned it into $6 million, or we turned it into $500,000, right? We made more money than it costs, yes? Then people will come to you because now you've got a track record, and more than likely the original investors will reinvest, okay? So you have to make more money than it costs. If you crowdsource this thing and you get an audience, then you get the revenues from eyeballs on YouTube. That's extra revenues. That's gravy. Okay. And then you start doing special shows for fans and, you know, Patreon and all the rest of it. But that's not the point I'm trying to make here. Uh, and so when you, look at, when you look at films, it's really simple. This movie was a failure. Really? A failure, huh? What did it make? made a uh, 214 million dollars it took in 214 million dollars and it's a failure yeah well why i mean it's not a mystery it's a failure because it cost 400 million dollars so even though we took in 214 million dollars it's a complete failure so anybody with a brain understands that since you cannot control whether or not people will come and see your product there no matter what people tell you there are no sure things these weird unknown little movies like um blair witch project or napoleon dynamite that that anybody could look at objectively and say this is just not a chance that's why they didn't get any money for them that's that's why they had to basically finance themselves they just lightning in a bottle they take off sure things you know the next the next um um uh, you know, Marvel thing. I mean, Marvel was golden, and then they just put out so much junk. Now it's like, phew. yeah, Juno was a great example. Um, what was the other one that I like very much? Uh, oh, about the girl who, uh, the beauty pageant. That was the first film that Paul Dana was in, I think. Um, Little Miss Sunshine. Uh, that kind of thing. So, so yeah, those are those work because they've got heart. But, but what I'm trying to say here is this. You cannot control the revenue. You can hope for the revenue. You can have stars. You can have special effects. You can use a oh, Miss Congeniality. I think it was Miss Sun, Little Miss Sunshine. I think it was. Um, and and you can do all these things and spend $100 million on marketing, all of that. But the only thing you can be sure of is if you want to make the, the returns higher than the cost, the only thing you control is the cost. Now we get back into uh, Bert Rutan's philosophy. When I was trying to describe uh, the... Um, the, the America's Greatest, uh, America's Forgotten Heroes episode on Dick Rutan and the, um, and the Voyager flight around the world, I basically said that, that in order to make this thing happen, Bert had to choose a path. One path is to add things. So we got to fly around the world. Yes. So we're going to need a big fuel tank. That's right. So in order to get that fuel tank up into the air, we're going to need a lot of engines, right? A lot of horsepower. That's right. Well, the more horsepower we have, the more fuel we're going to burn. Well, that means we're going to have to make the tanks bigger. Okay, well, if we make the tanks bigger, then they're going to be heavier, and that means we're going to need even more power. Well, then we'll add some more power. That's going to require more fuel. And on and on and on and on it goes. And the only way Voyager could have worked was, was Bert basically said, we, you can add things forever and you'll never get there. But if you go the other way, what can we take off? Well... If we make the plane out of carbon fiber, then it's going to be much lighter than it would be if it was out of aluminum. Okay, if it's lighter, then that means we don't need as much horsepower. And if we don't need as much horsepower, we don't need as much fuel. And, and so you, you, 
kind of go in the opposite direction. Voyager, if you leaned against Voyager with your elbow, you'd put a dimple in it. it I mean, the plane was just barely there. And, and the control surfaces were just barely there because, you know, ailerons create drag and all the rest of it. In fact, my favorite moment from that episode was, I got all this from Burton Dick verbatim, was they were doing test flights in Voyager and, and, and Dick, who was flying the planes, landed, you know, and ran up to Bert, practically ready to hit him and said, damn it, Bert, this thing doesn't turn, you know, I mean, there's no control authority. You're putting me in an airplane out there, the thing doesn't turn, it just barely turns, you know. And Dick, and Bert looked at Dick and said, Dick, it's an around the world mission. The plane doesn't have to turn at all. And I thought that's just, that's just fabulous. Anyway, you see where I'm going with this, right? So if you can, if you, quality is not dependent on money. There is a minimum amount of money that you need in order to get quality. There's no question about that. But if you can, if you can, if you can get to the point of what is the minimum amount of money I can spend to get quality and stay there on your cost end, then you're pretty much home free. In other words, if you can make an entertaining movie today for le for a million dollars or less, you can't lose money on that. If you're distributing worldwide, you cannot lose money on that. You just can't. If you finish it and it and it's a product, you can't lose. So you got to keep the cost low. So anyway, that's the that's the the entire plan, the entire pitch. Keep the cost down, keep the quality up, and. Uh, Hire people like you know Mike and maybe Adam Baldwin, and not desperate enough to say Nick Cersei or anything, but nevertheless you get the idea. Uh, yeah, CB Tome says every time I hear Dick tell a Voyager story, he puts something in he'd never heard of before. I doubt he's making stuff up. That was an incredible project. Uh, he doesn't have to make stuff up because you know it. You know it, it's really one of the most amazing stories ever. Yeah, so uh, uh, G.J. Rupert says, uh, hello, Rupert, um, uh, you're going to make a movie out of carbon fiber. Yes, that's exactly, that's precisely it. That's precisely it. We're going to make a movie out of carbon fiber. We're going to make carbon fiber films. Light, strong, tough, and inexpensive. And I learned a lot from watching Star Citizen. Don't get me wrong, I wouldn't mind having $400 million, but I think if you don't have, if it continues to come in, then you just keep adding and adding and adding and adding and adding. And then you never, ever, ever finish. So what I would have done if it was, with, with the benefit of hindsight, I might add, and in hindsight's 2020, if, if I had had Star Citizen in my, in my uh, clutches and I realized that it was going to take three or four years or something to get this thing out the door, the first thing I would have done is I would have had a, a workable fly model, the, 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 the dynamics of flying. I would have got that right first. They still don't. The, the, the flight model still is not there, at least last time I checked. And then I then I set up an economy that had some kind of fun, so that people would have something to do. And then I would start adding all the chrome, but they didn't. They built this they built this church from the from the steeple down, and and it's not it. It's, uh, people in the comment section are talking about my uh, my dear friend Kelly Carlson, uh, who was on Nip Tuck, and um, and she is my first choice for a, a, a number of 
of uh, reasons. I uh, got to see Kelly Carlson again a couple weeks ago. Uh, first met her oh, seven, eight, nine years ago. She hasn't aged a day. Kelly Carlson is the kind of person that, uh, and my wife has some of this too, actually has a lot of it too. Uh, I would been at a bunch of events uh, with, with Kelly, and Kelly is the kind of person that when she walks into a room, she brings her own spotlight with her. I can't describe it any other way. And and then she's not she's not doing the attention, you know, uh, floozy thing. She's just got it. Uh, Kelly had, when she was on Nip Tuck, had a, a, a seriously, had a credible threat from a stalker. Credible violent stalker threat and so um, she hired private bodyguard and the person she hired was a, a seal who had some time off and had some leave coming to him a significant amount of leave or something so that's who she hired and um, and his name is Dan and uh, and the first time I met Dan was at one of these events, you know, and and I'm there being fabulous, and Kelly's being fabulous, and we're at a table of fabulous people, and we're all telling our true tales of adventure, you know, and Dan's just sitting there eating his salad, looking around, smiling, being as nice as he can be. And then later you find out that, you know, Dan jumps out of airplanes, at midnight and then does it again at three in the morning out of Djibouti or something just goes down and, and, and takes care of these people that are plotting to blow up airplanes and buildings and all the rest of it and Kelly, Car Kelly Carlson uh, could have dated or, or married anybody in show business really could have gone the whole well I can't, I can't, I can't have a relationship with a unknown right I mean I'm famous and I need to I'm a movie star. I have to go out with other movie stars. But she didn't. So uh, so they got married, and they seem to be as happy as, as can be. And, um, and and Dan is one of the best guys I know. In fact, Dan is the, is the um, archetype uh, for my entire view of the U.S. military. Uh, and, I, and I have plenty of other sources. Uh, Jeremy's hired a few people like this, too. And the thing that's so amazing about these guys is they are actually, truly, honestly, kind, good-hearted, decent people who would not hurt a fly, except for the fact that they go out and kill people extremely efficiently because those people need killing. And, and that's my definition of what strength and, and being a man is, you know? Not going out and killing people, but doing what you have to do and, and, and not having a conniption fit over it. So she, so she, she married him and, and, uh, and she made the right decision and so did he. Um, and they're a great couple and they're fun to watch because Kelly is all spotlight and, and she's not trying to steal it, she just is. She's in a room, everybody's looking at Kelly Carlson. Uh, and uh, and Dan just sits there quietly. And I'm looking at Dan, and I'm looking at Dan, and Dan's watching the room. And, and, uh, and uh, Dan's not saying a word. And I'm thinking to myself, if something goes south here, uh, I'm going where, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to follow Dan. 
um, in any event, uh, it's fun to it's fun to know people like that. It's fun to know both sides of it. And by the way, you know that's the that's the real joy of my life. It's the Venn diagram of my life. That's why I'm I'm so astonishingly grateful for all of this, because I always wanted to be a pilot, and and I got kind of a warrior soul. I may not have a, a warrior's capability, but I I feel the calling, you know. And at the same time, I love doing all of this, you know. New costumes, new lighting, and you know, acting, and you know, and and I and I get to do both, and that's really, really, really unusual. Um, so I'm looking at Dan and Kelly, and I'm thinking, I'm kind of like, it's like it's like somebody took me and put me in the transporter and split me up into two pieces. Uh, so anyway, they're great people, and 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 by the way, it's not just the conservative uh, actors. I mean, the, 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 the first serious goal of this project would be to develop a, 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 you know, a conservative animation studio so that while you're working on these things, you've got another team with a separate fundraiser working on the Taffy 3 story, and another Kickstarter for Big Bat problems, and you know, all the rest of it. So, um, by the way, if anybody out there in, in the sound of my uh, electronically recorded voice uh, has had any experience with Kickstarter? I mean, not superficial experience. If you've ever, if you've ever run a Kickstarter campaign, or, or want to say Kickstarter crowdfunding in general, I'd love to hear from you at um, at uh, uh, info at billwhittle.com. Uh, here, uh, Aesop's Retreat has put up a picture of Dan. Yep, that's Dan and Kelly. All right, I, I will I will share uh, share this picture with my friends because these these guys are friends of mine and they are super super people. I love them both. I love them to death. They're both just fantastic folks. It's what makes America great, ladies and gentlemen. Manly, steely-eyed missile men and gorgeous, intelligent, talented women. That's 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 what this country is all about. And um, I'm proud to know both of them. Um, okay, so why don't we do some questions and, and things like that. Um, so you point out Johnny Depp won his case. Good for him. Um, because she's, you know, bat guano crazy, and and I'm glad that bat guano crazy got taken down a peg. I don't have much patience for that. I don't think I've ever told this story before. I'm reluctant to tell it now, but I guess I might as well. Um, at one of these uh, events, we had a like a restaurant <clears throat> that that was run by a conservative and ours and I was sitting outside and I was sitting there with Jeremy and I don't know if Andrew Breitbart was there but a couple of other people were there and this uh, this chick walks up and she had been part of the um, organization that didn't exist at least on the outer thing and she walks up and starts bitching out Jeremy for why she didn't get this, 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 or this, or she wanted a script handed to somebody or something, and she and it didn't happen, and she just started, you know, just bitching him out. And uh, and I just leapt in and said, who, "Who do you think you are? You know, who do you who do you think you are?" And she started, you know, getting more of this stuff, um, and then uh, and she got more and more, like you know 
I rate and I and I finally just said, you know, why don't you take the crazy someplace else? And she threw a, a drink in my face. Uh, was uh, apple cider, I think. And uh, and I've never had that happen before. I, I, I wore it as a badge of pride, to be honest with you, because sometimes you because you know. You, just go be crazy somewhere else. I'm, I'm not going to indulge you. Everybody's looking at their shoes, you know. Everybody's looking at the floor before this happens. Everybody's just kind of wishing this person would go away. And I said, no, go away now, you know. We don't need it. You're out of your mind. Just buzz off, lunatic. And then she's running out before the cops come. I wasn't going to call the cops, but the, 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 the place was. And I said, you know, next time you throw cider at somebody, you could at least warm it up before you do that. And that's an important part of... Uh, coming out of these things on top is you got to have a you know certain amount of il of uh elan. <sighs> yeah i i don't have a lot of i don't it, it, tell me uh, john Pershing says tell me it was amber heard it wasn't amber heard but there were there were definitely amber qualities about her you know that kind of bat guano crazy nope not putting up with anyway uh, that's that. And that, I have to tell you, uh, of the many, 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 many things I love about my wife, I, uh, one of my favorite things about that woman is that she's not nuts. That's really, really important. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, I asked about Kickstarter, and here's a channel about a guy who reviews Kickstarters. I'm going to save that page. Thank you very much. That was very, very kind of you. Uh, good. He breaks it down. So uh, there'll certainly be good advice in there. I don't know whether he'll be available for consultation, but in any event, there you go. Um, okay, so let's see what we got. Uh, oh, and, and uh, Lady Hawk um, points out that Gosnell was, was funded that way. Okay, so there you go. Uh, and G.K. Masterson uh, for the win there on the quote, which I'm not going to repeat, but basically is the best advice that you can give to anyone. Um, uh, G.K., could you send me those links that you sent me last week? I, I, I closed it up uh, after a long night, and I didn't get them, the, the, the um, YouTube video links, please. So I'd like to, I have a little more time tonight. Okay, let's see what we got. Uh, we're going to go to BillWiddle.com first. And, uh, uh yeah, sure. I guess I, I've been uh, kind of staying away from email lately because I get so much junk. Uh, but um, yeah, uh, let's see. All right, so let's uh, let's let's do this uh, thing here. There's billwhittle.com. Right angle backstage, you know, we do 250 of these things a year, I think Scott said. And we've been doing them for almost 15 years now. Is there a business uh, or official address you can send me something? Absolutely there is. Yes, thank you. Uh, you, it, you can write this down if you wish. Um, it is uh, 11271, billwhittle.com, 11271 Ventura Boulevard, number 361, 
Studio City, California, 91604. Uh, it's a um, UPS store. Um, they scan for bombs and anthrax. So if that's your intent, you might want to, you know, think outside the box a little bit. Here we go. Hang on. So, is this, is this you? I sure love the, uh, the banner. Reminds me a bit of, of um, Ejectia. Okay, anyway, thanks. Um, so, uh, where were we? Oh, yes, I remember. We were at BillWiddle.com. Uh, you're currently logged in. That's a good start. We'll go to uh, Members. And uh, we're going to go to Member Form. Uh, I'll, actually, um, uh, GK, if you can send me an email again, I'll be looking for it this time. I, I, I can't tell you how much um, obsessive focus this has taken, and I'm not done yet. I'm not out of the woods yet. I'm still on that the second I get out of here back home, four hours, uh, you know, sweating over hot pixels, but uh, it will eventually end and, and soon. Uh, that's not what I want. I want to go back uh, to this. You got it, uh, big house. All right, stress for lunch questions and more. 602 stress for lunch questions. There's our Henry Lumley, God bless you, my boy. Uh, John West, new forumite. Hey, Bill. Hey, John, good to see a new name. Cool, kind of a uh, avatar too. Looks a bit like, it's very small, but it looks a bit like um, um, Dr. Zoyberg. Hey, Bill, uh, just to add to the Enable Super Chats chorus, imagine, if you will, the possibility of spectacularly persipacious comments in real time, like, watch out, Bill, there's a Gorn behind you. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, thank you. Um, I have a very strong feeling when I get this thing out. So look, everything, everything is hanging on this thing, right? I can't do anything else until I get this thing done. I can't raise money. I can't, I can't open the second channel. I got this thing has to get finished. It's a ton of work, and the work's on the screen. You'll see it, but I got to get it done. But once I get it done, then I can start doing things like second channel and and you know, reviews, how to make movies, how to make movies in Unreal, all this stuff, and and then. Um, I think we're going to be moving off of, uh, thank you, and I think we're going to be moving off of uh, Twitch because I'm not super impressed. I think having watched um, uh, Nerdrotic and, and Doomcock and, and Critical Drinker and doing their live stuff there uh, was, um, I just think it's a way to go. Okay, uh, so, Ian Noland. Bill. Explaining how the Unreal Engine can hold and render such seemingly infinite detail, it looks like they finally incorporated this technology, where there's a link, which is essentially to search the image in reverse, calculate what's in and out of each pixel beforehand, and very aggressively cut off any sort of work rendering other than what the user, uh, anything that the user won't see. I.e. don't render the backside of an object you can't see, don't even render the legs of a guy standing behind a wall, and there's something about calculating how much the object is condensed in low pixel counts as well. 
As to the question, and unrelated to the above, you touched on this with one of your recent videos, but while I normally think politics and religion are mostly separate, never have I seen the demonic more visible in society than with some of the recent items related to anything and everything, sex, gender, abortion, etc. What are your thoughts on the fact that there is clearly a religious war at the heart of our political war? Um, uh, we shoot the virtue signal on Thursday, Ian, so that means uh, I'm recording this at 7.20, right at this exact instant, p.m., and so uh, at 11.30, just eight hours ago, we uh, I was working with Alfonso uh, Rachel. <laughs> Sorry. And I mentioned that this was um, uh, the beginning of LGBTQT uh, Pride Month, and so I decided to talk about this subject. I don't know if you've seen this. This was uh, a tweet put out by the United States Marine Corps. It's an official tweet from the United States Marine Corps. There's rainbow-colored bullets, and it basically says the Marine Corps is uh, is determined to, uh, you know, be all about inclusivity and and diversity, and um, and that you know. Everyone essentially is welcome in the, in the U.S. Marine Corps, and, and I thought, if I ever wanted to join the U.S. Marines and they told me we're going to shoot rainbow-colored bullets at the enemy, I would not want to be a Marine after that. Uh, and so the entire conversation came down to um, what... Uh, what what is this what's this about right i mean what is this this is this is again crystal clear on this this was tweeted out on the united states marine corps official twitter account um so as i mentioned on the show was oh i can remember when the marines had a slogan we're, we're looking for a few good men you know uh when when they say man i suppose they mean non-birthing people um, and, and this infuriates me. And the reason it infuriates me is not because I am transphobic. I don't care what transsexual people do with their own lives. It's none of my business. I really honestly don't care. But when you see this as, as an official policy of the United States Marine Corps, then you know that political activists have, have done this, and they've done this for a reason. And the reason is not that so many trans people are bouncing out of the uh, military. There's not that many trans people in the military. There's a handful of trans people in the military. And what they're trying to do is, is they're trying to defang the... Look, it's mission accomplished. What that image does is, what this image does is, is it takes anybody who wanted to go into the Marine Corps so they could shoot bad guys and defend the country, makes them want not want to go into the Marine Corps. And that's what these people want. They, it's not that they want a diverse Marine Corps. They're not, you know, they're evil, but they're not stupid. Well, they're not all stupid anyway. Um, so what, what, what's going on here? Well, we're going to, we're, it's, it's not, this, this image that you just saw is not about recruiting trans people into the Marine Corps. It's there. To, to discourage men from joining the Marine Corps. That is the political intent of that image, is to discourage, is to make it unattractive for toxic masculinity to join 
the absolute epicenter of, of toxic masculinity. And, um, and all of this stuff in the military is designed to make the military concentrate on things other than being good at killing people. And, and so who would be interested in this? In other words, it's happening. I didn't invent this. This, is, this really happened. So how did it happen? How? Well, I think the purpose is to completely undermine the military and, and, to, and to chase out the people who, who don't have any patience for this and, and to make sure that, that the people who would, would have joined don't. So, so who's, who's got a stake in us having our military defanged? I've said it many times, you know, 11 carrier uh, 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 strike groups is very impressive. But if the people operating them don't want to fight and think, as the Navy officially said, that global warming is the great existential threat to America, then you might as well sink those 11 battle groups. So essentially, China and all the rest of the people out there that are not our friends can say, well, we can't beat these I mean, America's been spending $600 billion a year for the last, you know, half a century. We can't, we can't compete with that. The, the Chinese Navy can't compete with the United States Navy in terms of hardware. There's not, not even close. They don't even have it. They, they, it's, it's not even close. So since they can't sink those carriers, what they'll do is they'll staff them with people who, um, who, who, who either won't or can't fight them. And, and you have sent You've just simply gotten rid of all of the United States military force. Um, so all of this stuff is alarming, uh, Ian, but at the same time, you can't beat the biology out of people, and it's not going to work. Right? It's not going to work. They're, they're on their way out the door and in a bum rush that's going to astonish the world come November. Uh, and that's how conservatives work, you know. Uh, liberals protest on the streets, conservatives protest on election day, and I've never seen anything, and every single, every single indicator is, is saying this is unprecedented. What's, what's going on in the country now in terms of the alignment of political, it's unprecedented number of people registering as Republicans. I understand that in Georgia, uh, a couple, not what, a week ago or whatever, when they had the election a week or two ago, that that the number of people who came out was astonishing and the fact that virtually all of them was were, were Republicans had people just couldn't believe it. I believe it. <laughs> Aesop says, when I tell my fellow soldier to cover me, I want him to know exactly what I mean. Yeah, um, me too. Um, so, these people uh, cheated their way into power and a fundamentally law-abiding nation uh, was effectively um, protected from the evidence. And so here we are. Now their policies are interacting with the real world, and this is what we see. We see this kind of inflation. We see this kind of you know, $6.50 a gallon for gas wasn't that way under Trump, and nothing changed except for the fact that Joe Biden shut down oil production in America. We were exporting oil, which blew my mind, but under Donald Trump, we were exporting oil 
right? So he shut it down because of his Green New Deal. He needs the Green New Deal because he has to keep the radical left engaged, and that's how it works. And so now the next chance that the American people get, they're going to tell him what they think, and that's, and that's going to be it. Um, so, you know, there you go. Uh, and then he says, ask the question... Oh, uh, sorry, that, I did get to the question. Is it a religious war as well as a political war? Um, yeah, it's a religious war. It's, but, but to say it's a... I think to say that it's a war against religion or, or a, that the left is, a, is fighting uh, Christians or, or whatever, because they certainly seem to be awful... It's funny, isn't it? The, the left um, has... Uh, just trying to get rid of that. Just, you know, some things you can't unsee. So the left, uh, you know, doesn't like Christians, and they sure don't like Jews. Crazy about Muslims, though. Uh, anybody who can tear down what's here, the left is all in favor of. Um, and anybody who built what we have is 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 their enemy. Um, uh, where was it with this? Yes. Yeah, so it's not. It's not that. The, I don't think the left is. I mean. The left hates Christianity, but they hate Christianity because Christianity demands something of them. When you, real, really, when you realize that progressivism is all about doing whatever you want to, whenever you want to, and not having any consequences to it, then everything makes sense. They, they despise Christianity because Christianity it, it holds people to standards. And they don't want to be held to standards. They hate capitalism because capitalism requires you to get up off the couch and, and, and go to work. And if you do that and you work hard, you'll be rewarded. So they're too lazy to do that. And so the fact that some people aren't too lazy and they get rewarded bothers them. And so they say, well, they're making more than, the, than I am. So therefore, that's unfair. So therefore, we have to take away their money and give it to me. Um, uh, Rivera says, why don't they hate Muslims? They don't hate Muslims because Muslims are working to, uh, to, because the Muslims are doing their best to destroy the West that they hate the most. The, the progressives, there's a term called oikophobia, and, and it's, the, it's the antithesis of, um, of uh, xenophobia. Xenophobia is fear of the unknown. Oikophobia is fear and loathing of the familiar. And, and these people, you know, have it. If 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 it, if it came from America, then it's it's uh, square, you know. It's 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 square. It's racist. It's it's violent. It's deadly. It's toxic. It's killing the planet. Okay, the left has been working on this narrative for a hundred years now. Really, a hundred years. The Frankfurt School started right around 1922. They've had a century to work all this stuff out, and and we've seen the damage it's done. And it's not over, but I'm but peak. Progressivism is over. That 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 the tide is starting to recede, but we won't see another. They're not. They're never going to be stronger than they already have been. They're on their way down, and they're not going to. They're not going to. I'm not saying they won't come back. I'm not saying they won't do more damaging stuff, but but they're. But but look, 2020 was their. 2020 was their move. It was their move, and um, and and what has this move gotten them? It's gotten them the absolute incandescent rage of huge numbers of, of American people. 
Okay, so that's what it takes. Um, uh, Marisha says, my father's a Fabian socialist who hates America and thinks all of the problems in the world originated from white men. And I'll bet he talks about that on the internet using computers and electricity, and I bet he's probably taken an antibiotic once or twice in his life, and I bet that the place that he's writing these uh, screeds from is air-conditioned and, and has indoor plumbing, and, and, uh, and, and you turn on the tap and water comes out, which you can drink, and, uh, and on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Uh, I have not seen 2,000 Mules. I've heard it's great, and I will get a chance to see it when I get over this thing. Um, so this is, what, this is what they want. They hate, they hate Christianity because, because Christianity reminds them that what they're doing is wrong. And they know, that, they know it is. They know it. They just can't bear to hear it. Uh, I've mentioned uh, that I got my first taste of this in action when I was in high school. My first uh, uh, two years, I was just a you know science geek, a calculator on my belt, and I was wearing a turtleneck every time I went to school in Florida in the summertime because I was, figured that's what astronauts wear. It was pathetic. And then when I lost the Air Force Academy op opportunity uh, due to my vision, I um, I just started making movies and, and people wanted to be in those. So I started getting invited to parties and stuff that I hadn't been invited to before. Next thing you know, I'm doing like DJ routines, you know, and I'm making people laugh. And all of a sudden, hey, are we really cool. We thought you were kind of a square weirdo. I said, I am kind of a square weirdo. Uh, and so anyway, is that one of these things you got to understand this was senior in high school and this was 1977. So this is not going to seem such a big deal today, but it was a big deal back then. Went to, went to this party in, in, in 1977, started getting invited to parties, and and they started passing around this joint, and it came to me, and, and I said, no thanks. Uh, and um, and they said, why not? I said, I just don't really want to do it. Thanks. I don't have a problem with it. I'll just hand it on to the next person. And then they started to, then they started to get down on me for this. And they started to push me to do it. And the more they pushed me, the more I dug my heels in. And, and now it's like, you know, <laughs> no. And, and that, that um, dynamic never left me, you know. There was one person that wasn't going to be, look, I, I don't give a damn about people smoking pot. I don't care. I don't. It's not my business. But because I didn't want to do it, it made all of the rest of them realize that they shouldn't be doing this. Again, 1977, right? This was illegal. And, and that wasn't why I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it because I didn't want to do it. Um, and the more they tried to, to pressure me into it, the more reluctant I became. And the more reluctant I became, the more they tried to pressure me into it. And so there's that dynamic, right? We're all doing something, you know, naughty. And you're not. Yeah, I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm not saying I'm going to rat you out. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just not going to do it. So there stands an example. And, and that part, that shriveled part of their, uh, of their uh, soul that still exists is telling them, you shouldn't be doing this. And, and, and he's providing evidence that you shouldn't be doing it. And therefore, he must be destroyed because you want to do it. 
uh, and you know there you go um, so uh, it's it's it, I don't think it's so much a, a, a I don't think it's so much a religious thing exactly to be honest with you uh, Ian I think it's much more that they're they're not so much a war with Christianity as they are with morality that's the thing that they can't stand is, is morality and uh, Christianity is um, is that's their product and uh, and so any kind of moral because if you think about it they're not just at war with Christianity they're at war with things like math right math is racist why is math racist well the idea that there's a, a one right answer to something is is white supremacy what they hate about math is is that there is one right answer to something and and that answer is immune to what they want it to be all of this stuff this all of it is is based on is based on a group it is a group hallucination and the way it works is if enough of us say that if we want something to be true it becomes true if enough of us agree on this then it will actually happen it's almost like a seance or something it's like if they if if ever as long as nobody breaks the spell by by saying no you're you're nuts as long as they're constantly hearing if i believe it then it's true if i believe it then it's true if i believe it then it's true well then that's why all of their stuff makes internal sense because math doesn't obey those rules and therefore rather than having the fact that some things are true and some things are not true because in mathematics true and false is a is a, is a specifically designed uh concept you can't do math if, if if math is impossible if if the solution can be anything right it's just it's just nothing there and the fact that there's only one answer means that there's only one truth at least as far as this particular equation is concerned two plus two equals four well maybe in my truth it doesn't these are linguistics this is sophistry whether you like it or not two plus two equals four and even if nobody was here to argue about it it would still be two plus two equals four and you know it but you see the problem with math is is that if you if it turns out that there are things that are objectively true and no matter how much they want to wish it wasn't true it still is true then this is the chink in the armor and this is where everything falls apart this is why they this is why the trans movement is where they're going to this is why they're this is why they're fighting on this hill right why why is it that they're saying that um, of course men can of course men can have babies of course men can have periods why why are they why are they saying that it's ridiculous they know it's ridiculous but you see if you if you if you break the magical thinking in one place you have to break it every place and if it turns out that that no men by definition the definition of a, of a female is is a is a, a human being who can who can give birth and the definition of a male is somebody who can't and and if if that distinction stays then that means that there is in fact objective truth out there in the world and that means that they don't get to do whatever they want to and that and that means that their idea about taking well, if we just pass a law banning guns then violence would disappear if we could pass a law banning guns then then there wouldn't be any murder wouldn't be any crime at all 
that, as Marusha pointed out, it's, it's just the white people caused all the problems in the world. And, and th there's no cure for this. The people who make statements like that are as stupid as they are because they live in a society that's been created by civilization. And they need to go and spend some time in the, in the, um, in the Amazon with some of those tribal people because then they'll realize what civilization really is. And they'll find, to their shock and amazement, that primitive people are in much, much orders of orders of orders of magnitude more likely to be murdered. Primitive tribes are at war with each other all the time. They're constantly at war, all the time. And, and you know, there you go. You can occasionally hear people like this saying, you know, it's just so horrible to watch. I'll see these people coming out of the jungle, these 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 wonderful natives who are so pure of heart and so and so pure in spirit, and, and I see them coming out of the jungles and they're wearing, you know, cotton shorts and they're wearing t-shirts and it just breaks my heart. And it's like you don't think of them as people. You're you're talking about a zoo animal, right? The reason that they're wearing uh, cotton shorts is because cotton shorts are more comfortable than banana leaves are. I'm assuming. I don't have first-hand experience in that case. right? So what they're basically saying is, how dare these indigenous people wear comfortable clothes? We have an image of them as the noble savage, and the very least that they can do is live up to our expectations. and the fact that they're wearing clothing that is more comfortable kind of blows their appeal for the oikophobe. I did something on this a, a, quite a while ago, and a real long time ago, when I was doing the What We Believe series, and I was talking about, um, I forget what the actual topic was, but I took a, I took a point on the map, I took... Um, What is that town in Texas? Lubbock. I took Lubbock, Texas. And I, and I, because, you know, people are saying, well, you know, the white males came in and took this from the Mexicans. White males are very, very naughty, naughty, naughty people. So I took a look at Lubbock, Texas. I put a pin in Lubbock. And I did a research, did a little research on the history of that particular area. Not of Lubbock town, but that location. And it turns out that white people did, in fact, take it from uh, from Mexico. So, actually, unfortunately, before you give it back to Mexico, you'd have to give Lubbock back to the Confederacy because they had it before it became a U.S. state. So if you want to give Texas back to its rightful owners, you got to give it to the Confederacy. Um, but the Confederacy took it from... it being an independent nation, so you'd have to give it back to Texas as an independent nation, and they took it from Mexico. And the Mexicans took it from Spain, and the Spanish took it from the French, and then the French took it from the Spanish because that's what was going on along back there. And then I want to say the Comanches, uh, the French took it from the Comanches, uh, the Comanches took it from the Navajo, and you go all the way down to Piltdown Man, and you've got 12 clearly identifiable owners of that spot of land, 12, something like that, right? They took it from them, 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 they took it from them. And the point I made there is, there's only two people on this spectrum that have a legitimate claim to ownership of this. 
And that is the first people that have it and the people that have it now. And Piltdown Man isn't here anymore. So, I'm going to give it back to Mexico. Okay. Mexico has to give it back to Spain. Spain has to give it back to France. France has to give it back to Spain again. Then they have to give it to the uh, to the Comanches. The Comanches have to give it to the Apaches. The Apaches have to give it to the Navajo. And 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 then you go back until you find the original owners, and they're not here anymore. So, well, they are here. It's not like it's not like they were exterminated. They're just they're part of the gene pool. And by the way, I don't. I'm not aware of there being a more bloody patch on Earth than uh, France. So you know, all you white people wiped out the um, the the uh, the Aztecs. The Aztecs would sacrifice eighty thousand people in a weekend. Cut their hearts out. Eighty thousand. Eighty thousand people in in three days. And. If, the, if they were exterminated, then what happened to the Picts or the Saxons? Where are they? You know, where are the um, the Franks? Where are the uh, what? What about the the, 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 the Phoenicians and uh, and the Romans, for that matter? Where are their Where's their culture? Where, where did it all go? Um, this idea that America is uniquely uh, culpable. Uh, for this kind of thing is because America's the first great world power that's had enough of a conscience to let it bother us to some degree. Where are they? Where are all these people gone? How many wars did China fight? Was it two, cent two centuries? Ha 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 ha. Was it two millennia? Three? They were constantly just going back and forth and murdering everybody? Mongols spread out of Mongolia and conquered everything? I've heard something to the effect of, uh, pretty sure it's Genghis Khan. It might have been Attila, but I think it was Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan apparently slept with something like 10,000 women or something and had hundreds of thousands of children. And now that we can sequence the human genome, I forget the exact number, but I want to say something like one in 12 people on the planet are descended from Genghis Khan, personally, from him. Right? Okay. So, you know. Uh, I'll tell you if um, if these people uh, who are talking about this, uh, you know, the, how evil white men are. I really, honestly, seriously, would love to have had them in um, Teotihuacan on a, on a holiday. Love to watch them react to eighty thousand slaves conquered, painted blue, led up the side of a temple. Had their living hearts cut out, held up to the to the to the gods. Body head the heads cut off, rolls down there. Hurrah! Then the body comes down, and then they then the priests wear the body as a skin. I'd like to see how many of um, people like uh, like her father, um, how how long they could um, stand that, you know. I'd like to see how long they could survive in a gulag, because that's not America. That's that's good old socialist stuff. I'd like to see how many of them would be uh, would be changing their mind if they were part of the enforced starvation in, in Ukraine or in China, for that matter. I'd like to know what their opinion would be if um, 
if uh, they uh, had been in Cambodia. Risha says her father said the other day he unironically claimed that Islam does not tolerate child abuse. Face palm. Uh, and 5708 Rivera says Apocalypto. If you haven't seen that, it's excellent. It's just excellent. Mel Gibson is a fantastic filmmaker. Apocalypto is the kind of movie that I absolutely love because it is such it is so accurate historically that it's actually like being there and watching it. And it's a it's a great movie. It's not for the faint-hearted, but it is it's just a great story. Um and everybody should have to watch it. I think Apocalypto should be required reading in, in humanities. This is what Central American cultures were. This is what they did. They went out there and found a bunch of relatively peaceful tribes people, and they killed some of them on the spot, tied the rest of them together with ropes around their neck, led them back to, uh, to Teotihuacan, trotted them up the pyramid, and cut their living hearts out. 80,000 in two, three days. Uh, now, it wasn't always at that pace, but of course it couldn't be. And, um, and you know, and the whole thing about, oh, well, you know, we gave the Indians uh, in smallpox and infected blankets, uh, and they talk about this like it was a bioweapon. You know, we gave the Indians smallpox infected blankets a hundred years before we even knew that smallpox, before we even had germ theory. Right? When we were given... Indians blankets the universal belief was that sickness came from bad vapors bad air that's what malaria means bad air uh, so you know it's kind of kind of advanced of horrible white people to be that far ahead of the curve so that they that they launched a germ warfare before there was germ theory um, Eric Blake says, Dinesh had a great point in his America film. Um, when we won the Mexican-American War, we technically conquered it all, then we gave them back the southern half and paid for the northern half. He said, I wonder how many of the illegal immigrants from Mexico wish we'd kept it all. Um, yes. Uh, the, that war was, you make a pretty good case that that was the most, um, you know, imperialistic, aggressive war this country fought that, or the uh, Spanish-American War was was relatively a uh, noble cause in the beginning, but once we got the Spanish out of Cuba, then we started looking at, oh, the Philippines might be nice. So we actually were imperialists for about mm, 20 years, maybe. Um, but, uh, but, um, uh, what was the comment? Oh, the, the Mexico thing. The reason that the Mexican-American War started was because uh, because Mexico had defaulted on so many loans. They'd just taken money and just, just didn't pay it back. And they went back there and they basically said, well, in exchange for the money that you took from us, we'll take this, this, and this, and we'll pay you, and, and, and there you go. But the point, the bigger point is much bigger. It's like, look, if you've ever been to a border town, I, I've, I've never been to Tijuana and I have no desire to go, but I have been to the very, very southern part of San Diego. And I've seen um, Juarez, and I've seen, um, what's the town that's across from uh, 
the southern part in Arizona. Um, it'll come up in a second. And if you drive along and you look over the border, it's like gravity's a little different over there. The houses are not, this is my first impression, the, the houses are not vertical. They're, they're kind of angly, you know. Uh, and they're built on hills and, and they're not, they're not true. They're not, they're not, they're not plumb, you know. You drop a, a plumb line and it's not, it's not there. Uh, and that's because the country is, is poor and they can't afford to build things the right way in the beginning. And so this is, this is how poverty works. Poverty is a series of band-aids applied to the situation because they don't have the resources to get it done right the first time or to really fix it. Um, and the reason that this is a is a trap is because you 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 cannot get out of you cannot get out of um, can't get out of the third world until you lose the third world mentality. Nogales, yes, thank you, it's Nogales. Um, and the, and and you know it's 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 not a secret, and it's not and it's not racial. It's not any of those things it's just it's just a it's a it's a culture you know if you had drawn the line right now the line is between san diego and and um tijuana and san diego is glittering skyscrapers and tijuana is donkey shows if you had if that border had been a little further south then tijuana would be skyscrapers and, and stuff and when you get into this aztec movement you know this um uh, what's it called um uh, is it Aslan? You know this this thing. We get. I don't see so much of it anymore. But this whole idea of you know, we're going to take back this is Mexican territory. We're going to take it back. It's like what they want to take back is they want to take back the skyscrapers and the plumbing. But they didn't build the skyscrapers or the plumbing. They want it, but they didn't build it. That's why they want it. That's why they want where Mexican uh, nationalists here in L.A. and other places. Aslan, yeah. That's why they're talking about the Reconquista. They want they want that well, the Reconquista is um, is uh, Spanish uh, when the Christians t kicked out the Muslim invaders. Uh, but they want the skyscrapers and the Porsches and the air conditioning, and they're claiming that that was stolen from them, but it wasn't. Even if you want to grant them that it was stolen, which I don't. But the land was stolen, Tijuana was stolen, but everything that's built on it wasn't stolen. We built them, and that's what they want. And so, um, look, it's easier to take it than it is to build it yourself, right? The whole thing is, all of this stuff is, is actually very simple. It's, it's simple, but it's, but it's hard, right? It just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. Um, the secret to this is delayed gratification. That's, it's that simple, right? You have to be willing to do without now and put resources into things so that you can live better later. I've told this story a couple times on this show, but the first time I went to Mexico, I, I, I love, love, love Cancun, love it, love it. But I was, it was hard to get me back to Cancun because I first time I'd been to Mexico, only time I'd been to Mexico was in Cabo San Lucas. I was sitting on the beach in Cabo San Lucas and, and all of these vendors came up and stood a, a, a few feet in front of us between us and the ocean. 
Now in Mexico, there is no private property of the beach. Okay, but these but these people would stand there, these uh, these um, sellers, with their trinkets, you know, and they wouldn't get out of the way until you bought something. And so I bought something. I spent probably ten bucks. And as I was handing that money over, I said, I'm never coming back to this country again, ever. Uh, they're not getting another dollar from me, right? And this goes back to my favorite story about my dad, because my dad was an excellent hotel manager. And I know many of you longtime listeners of the show have heard this, but I'm going to tell it again because I like telling it. It's not too long. My father was a great hotel manager because my father understood that it was that, that, that running a hotel and making it successful was a long-term proposition. And we were sitting in the dining room. We were in the Bermuda room, and, and it was the first seating. It was the 8 o'clock seating. And we would go down there once or twice a week and eat at the hotel. So we were all in our little blazers, our little bow ties, and, and our little shirts, and our little knee socks, and our Bermuda shorts, and all the rest of it. And, and we're all on this round table, and my dad's in his you know, in his evening jacket. My mom's looking like a, like a vision, you know, in a, in a gown. And I'm in a round table and, and I'm, I'm the one closest to the table behind me. And just cause I was bored, I just happened to be listening. And the waiter over there is taking their orders around the table, you know, and, and he said, uh, uh, what would you, and, and for you, sir. And he said, I'll have the, uh, the chicken Marcella and I didn't think anything of it. 20 minutes goes by and they bring out the dinners and they put them down and this guy put the, the waiter put the chicken marsala down in front of this this guy and he said I didn't order this and and the waiter said I'm sorry he said I ordered the filet mignon now whether he made an honest mistake or was trying to cheat us doesn't matter right it doesn't matter it's completely irrelevant I ordered the filet mignon and the and the waiter's just mystified you know and and my dad's out of his chair it's like just glided over there and said, hi, I'm, I'm, uh, my name's Bill Little. I'm the manager of the hotel. It seems like we've made a mistake of some kind. What can we do to straighten this out? And the guy said, well, uh, I ordered the filet mignon. He brought this uh, chicken marcella. That's not what I ordered. I said, well, we're terribly sorry for the mistake. Um, so um, we're going we're gonna to rush that filet mignon out there right away. And uh, we'd like to buy all of your drinks uh, complimentary tonight to make up for the, you know, for the, uh, the discomfort that we've caused you and the, the, the mistake. And I am about grabbing my dad's jacket saying, Daddy, he, he basically gives me one of those be quiet, we'll talk later things. So we did. So they finished their meals. The guy got his, got his filet mignon. He got up and left. He was very happy, came over and thanked us, said, appreciate the service. My dad said, it's an absolute pleasure. We're very, very glad you're here. Uh, and, and thank you for being so, con so considerate about it. And then they left. And then my dad said, then I got a chance to say to him, Dad, I heard the whole thing. He didn't order the, the filet mignon, he ordered the chicken marsala. And my dad said, I know that, Billy. Of course I know that. The, 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 this waiter, Antonio, I, I recruit them from Italy. They're the best waiters in the world. These guys don't make mistakes. I knew, I knew, I knew, I knew from the beginning that the guy was wrong. I said, well, why did you do it? And he said, well, let's just do some numbers, Bill. Billy, the... the, the Filet mignon probably cost me, now we're talking about $19.68, you know, probably cost me, you know, for the sake of the argument, cost me $5, right? And the drinks probably cost me $30. Um, so I'm out $35, $40, let's say I'm out $50, right? I'm down 50 
Um, but the chicken marsala goes to the back, and 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 one of the um, one of the busboys or one of the one of the dishwashers gets a real nice meal for free because we can't obviously resell that. We can't can't. So so they get a free meal. So there's that. But he said, look, Bill, Billy. He said, this guy comes here every year, and he's now he's going to tell his friends to come here every year because he feels special here. And if I had embarrassed him in front of his friends and insisted on keeping my $35, I might have gotten the $35, but I'm going to lose all of his business and all of his friends' business. And I'm not going to sacrifice $20,000 of income to save $35 on a meal. Uh, no. I thought, I was seven when I heard this. I thought, Dad's a genius. It's the most brilliant thing I've ever heard in my life. And, and, and nevertheless, you'll find it seems so obvious and so self so self-explanatory that who who wouldn't run a business this way but i've been to restaurants where somebody said i'd like the, i'd like the soup please a soup and half a sandwich uh okay uh, what would you like i'd like the, the the split pea soup please and um and half a uh half a turkey sandwich on white i'm sorry so the the turkey only comes on on wheat okay um but can i get it on white no i'm sorry it only comes on wheat do you have white bread in the kitchen? Yeah, but but the chef only makes it. So you're, you you do have white bread, but you can't put the sandwich on on white. No, no, I'm sorry, afraid not. Okay, I'll take it on wheat. Uh, so I took the thing on wheat, and as I paid the bill, I said to myself, I am never ever coming back to this place, and I never did. Right. So the same thing applies to um, to Mexico or any other third world country. Those people who were blocking my view were blocking my view because they wanted my $10, and they got it. But what they didn't get was all of the money I would have spent if I'd gone back there again and again and again. Now, in their defense, because this needs to be said, they couldn't afford the long game. They couldn't afford it. They had family to feed that day. So I don't blame them for it. But somewhere along the line, right, somewhere along the line, these people have to start thinking long term. Um, and, and I was very pleased uh, to find out that um, uh, Marisha Dark says the customer isn't always right, but the customer has to think they're always right. I was, when I was working at the planetarium, I was a, uh, a junior supervisor. I was probably 17, 18 years old or something. We had this guy who was an usher, and he, was, he wasn't there very long. He, he, he was a, he was, the guy was just off. And he got into an argument with somebody or something, you know, like a shouting match. And I had to walk over there and say, whoa, whoa, we're terribly sorry. You know, so, you know. And he says this, and then this guy says, this guy said, you know, said the usher did this, this, or this. And then the other, the usher shouting back. And I said, whatever his name was, I said, Jim, just go, just go into the room there and, and wait. Okay. Oh, you're taking his side. Said, just, just go into the room and wait. And I talked to this guy and found out what was, what was going on. And he said, okay, you know, terribly sorry and blah 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 and i went back and and then this guy this usher guy's irate i said man listen it's not a question of me taking your side it's not a question of me saying you're wrong it's a question of very simply this you are getting paid money to be here and to be nice to these people and if you don't want to do that that's fine then go and the check is going with you so make up your mind This, this, this seems so self-evident to me, but no. And, and, and I was saying earlier, you know, this business about, um, about uh, 
why this is actually true is is because there's a there's a um, a thought experiment called the prisoner's dilemma, and basically it is you've got two people in separate rooms. I'm going to go into all the details, and and basically the deal is if you rat the other guy out, right, and he doesn't rat you out, you go free. If you both rat each other out, then you do five years. If neither of you rat each other out, you do 10 years. And if he rats you out, you don't rat him out, you go to jail forever. So what it does basically is it makes you, it basically says the optimum outcome is if I, if I treat the other person well, but in order to get the optimum outcome, he has to treat me well. And if he doesn't, it's the worst outcome for me. So you have to ask yourself, do I trust this person? And when you play this thing on when you play this thing on on computers, you find out that no, you, screwing the other guy is the is the least damaging option, right? So you never, so you always rat him out, always, because you can't know whether he's going to rat you out or not. You'll still do some time, but you won't do as much as if you don't rat him out and he does rat you out. That's how it goes. But 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 screwing the other guy is the strategy that wins every single time. But 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 but. When they run this thing thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of times on computers, what they find is, is that that is true. It is true if there are two strangers interacting one time. But if reputation comes into it, then you've got something called the iterative um, prisoner's dilemma, which means that you go through through one round and then the results of that first round are remembered in the second round. And you can pretty much figure this out already, right? What it means is, is that over, over a relatively short period of time, all of the individual players, even if they're computer players, will start to develop a reputation. This guy has ratted out the last five, six people that he was involved with. I'm pretty confident that given that, he's going to rat me out. But even more importantly, you run into a guy say, he has never ratted out anybody. So I have good reason to believe that he won't rat me out. So I won't rat him out. We'll both go free, right? So it is, so, so what... What that computer simulation, what that thought experiment shows is, yes, it is best to screw the other guy and take the short-term game if you never are going to see them again. But if there is going to be a long-term relationship, it's in everybody's best interest by far to not screw the other guy, right? So societies that have long-term benefits, and, and a, I, I described it as the web of trust. I trust you, I'm going to trust you, I'm going to trust, I'm going to trust all you people. Some of you will screw me. And I'll take a loss there, but the benefit of being in a trust-based society is enormously outweighs the alternatives. When you play the game, uh, the, when you play the iterative uh, prisoner's dilemma, by the way, the winning strategy is not screw the other guy. The winning strategy is fascinating in, in that case. When, when reputation follows you, the winning strategy in terms of best possible outcome is tit for tat. When you're playing with people that have a reputation, then, then the best solution is tit for tat. And tell me if this doesn't make sense to you in terms of how the world works. If you're going to play against the same kind of person again and again and again, then tit for tat means you don't rat them out. But if they rat you out, then you rat them out. And you keep ratting them out until they change. And if they change, then you change back again. In other words, the best outcome is for everybody to trust everybody. But if you trust somebody and they screw you, you have to screw them back. Because if you don't, you will have a reputation as the guy who's easily screwed, and you will get more and more and more screwed. It's the worst possible outcome. So you, you start out honest, and you start out fair. 
And if, if you treat somebody fairly and they treat somebody and you treat you fairly, then everybody wins, wins, wins. If you meet a guy who you treat fairly and he screws you, you have to screw him back and keep screwing him back until he decides to not screw you, at which point you must then immediately switch back to not screwing him either. So this is how, this is how rich societies get rich. Everybody cooperates and everybody trusts everybody else. And if one person violates that trust, they get the short-term win, but they get the long-term loss. Um, so there you go. Hope that helped. Uh, this is a little uh, admin. It's admin note from Marisha Dark says just let you know that GK Masterson has been helping us add a bot to the Discord server that will now auto feed links to all of your YouTube videos and Twitch streams the moment they go live, as well as auto assign roles for Discord members. Astonishing. The bot can aggregate up to five channels. So far, we have yours, Doomcock, and Lotus Eaters, which is Sargon of of Arcad's uh, New Culture and Podcast, which does great work over in the UK. Do you have any preference for what the other two should be channels you think everyone should be should follow and be made aware of as a top priority? If you can't think of anything right now, just send me a message later. Uh, Critical Drinker. And... Are we talking about things that I find interesting or things that I think people who should watch because critical drinker for sure nerdrotic would be one but to be perfectly honest with you one of my favorite channels is um it's called fascinating horror uh, i just love it it's a seven minute look at historical catastrophes here's a fire that killed 190 children in london and 1809 here's the collapse of the mgm building thing here's this and here's that and it's just like it's fascinating here's all the things that happened here's this big catastrophe and you find out why these things happened i just love it i think it's great it's called fascinating horror um it's not really the right title because it's not really horror it's more like um it's more like um you know, look, Fascinating Horror is a great title, but it, it, what it really is saying, here's a, here's a series of catastrophes, and here's what you can learn from them. And most all of the times you find malfeasance and, and greed and, and things like that are just beyond imagination. Uh, so here's Marisha back on talking about Unreal. Um, I'll, I'll read this later. Uh, I don't want to talk enough about this already, but it looks interesting. Thank you. Um, Chris Taylor says, uh, hey, Bill, I was listening to a sermon by astrophysicist Hugh Ross about how incredibly balanced the features of our solar system, galaxy, galactic cluster, and universe have to be for us to exist. And more importantly for an astronomer, his claim that we live in one of the few locations, the only known galactic cluster not dominated by supergiant galaxies out of, from the galactic bulge, not near gaseous nebula and between spiral arms and within a narrative, relatively narrow band of time. Light from the formation of the universe can reach us, but the universe is not expanding so fast yet as to pre prevent us from seeing it. To allow astronomers to have a good view of the cosmos and let us probe the origins of the universe. Do you have any thoughts on his assertions about the useful astronomical observation being difficult or impossible in most other locations in the universe? An observation of the cosmic background radiation being possible only during a relatively small window of time compared to the expected lifetime of the universe. I just love questions like this. Um, 
Okay. I've been talking about this guy, and 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 I I'm gonna go up and, and visit with him and see if I can just announce his name. He's not asked me to hold his name by any means. I just don't feel comfortable mentioning it. But I've mentioned him on the show several times. He's the guy who um, who basically helped design the internet and uh, and basically wrote the Amazon website. He's just the guy who, who, who built it. Um, and he, he is one of the founding fathers of the uh, information revolution. And the thing that he said right out of the gate was, we were talking about AI, artificial intelligence, and he said, they're so far away from genuine artificial intelligence, they can't even describe to you what it is. They think it's right around the corner because, because they're able to say, well, in five years, we'll have the computing power, we'll have the, we'll have the same degree of complexity in terms of synapses as the human brain does, at which point it will suddenly become awake and, 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 and it'll be smarter than we are. And then it'll design smarter and smarter versions of itself forever. And it's what I've always believed, you know, it's what I've always heard. He said, it's, it's ridiculous, it's insane. It's insane. No, they don't, they can't even describe, they cannot describe what memory is, where it is. They can't, they can't tell you where human memory is. They can't tell you how the mind works. They, 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 the consciousness is, is the greatest mystery of the universe. He said the fastest network ever, ever known by order of magnitudes is the corpus callosum, the, the bundle of nerves that connects your left and right hemisphere. The amount of data that things translates in, 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 in a moment is it just makes the most sophisticated computer networks in the in the world just like a joke he told me a story that I thought was so profound I'm going to be working with this guy by the way we're going to be doing some great stuff together I think really really cutting edge stuff but he was telling me again he was there he was there for the whole thing see this guy has not only got a, 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 a world expert level of computer science he also has astonishingly deep knowledge of biology, microbiology, how proteins fold, and, and, and all of the miracles involved with that. So he and I have been talking a lot, and, and he has utterly convinced me uh, through evidence that, um, that, uh, that the entire concept is just laughable. For example, he believes he, when I say he's a creationist, he's not one of these people that thinks the Earth is six thousand years old. He 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 just says that, as this guy was pointing out, that that just because it's not he's not even making the argument about hey, it's how unlikely is it that all these conditions happen to line up? He's not even making that argument. He's making a much 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 deeper argument. He's making the argument of of willed intent of logos of the essence of something. And one of the many, many examples he gave me was this. He was there when, when, uh, when MS-DOS was being written. MS-DOS became Windows. MS-DOS is what made Microsoft. MS, Microsoft DOS, DOS. If you're old enough, you remember DOS. Before you would drag and drop things, you would have to type in command things on DOS. So DOS was the first, was the first pr uh, PC language that had applications wide enough to become at finally a, a standard. And in the early days of the PC, I was there for this. 
software wouldn't run nine different operating systems. Nobody software would never run on something else. Anyway, so DOS, right? So so he he knows the guy who wrote DOS. He was part of part of the team, and he said when when this guy was getting they're getting ready to do this, he said they just come out with a chip someplace, and of course that day is. Stone knives and bearskin chip, but they were excited about it because he he realized this thing had the ability to actually run DOS as he had DOS in his head. So he went out and bought this, went out, drove out, bought this chip, brought it back, hooked it up to a primitive motherboard, and and started programming DOS. I said okay, and he said, the point, Bill, is that. Is that the essence of the box, what the box does, the essence of it didn't come from inside the box. The essence of it came from outside the box. As a matter of fact, the only reason there is a box is because the essence of it, which is the imagination of this one programmer who, who understood what a very, very simple machine could do, was the impetus not only for this machine coming to life and doing what it was supposed to do, but that's the reason that the box existed in the first place. And his entire argument is, is that is that you cannot understand the system from within the system. And he said there's no examples of anywhere you look in nature, science, anywhere, of a system that I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this without screwing it up. Essentially, when you run into things that happen inside a box, the, the, the wondrous things come from outside the box. They have to, because the box cannot generate something greater than it is. In other words, in other words, you could take the, when I say the box, you could take the new chip and the motherboard, the power supply and some RAM and plug it in and, and it, not only does it not ever make DOS, it, it doesn't, it's, it, it's not aware of what DOS is. It, it's just a box. It, it is the will, the intent of the, of the human mind that made that box possible. And when I'm talking about that first box running DOS, that is directly one-to-one -one correlation with the, with the latest hardware and software as far as this artificial intelligence thing goes. This, these things are not thinking. They're not, these AIs are not thinking. They are processing, they are sorting, they are eliminating, but they're not thinking. There's nothing creative going on here and there's no spark of it, no sign of it, and, there's, and it's not ever gonna happen because it's in, because you cannot describe it, you cannot identify it. That spark of consciousness is, is not something that can be described. And the people who are working on AI and self-conscious machines are convinced it's right around the corner, have been convinced it's right around the corner for 50 years, and it's a question of, oh, we just don't have the technology yet. No, it's not a question of technology. It's not a question of technology. It's not a question of a processor speed. It's not a process, it's not a, it's not a, a, a question of processing memory, nothing like that. These people are materialists, and they think that if you, if the human brain is this complex, and we have consciousness because we can count the number of neural connections, then all we have to do is build a box that has an, that is an equivalent number of neural connections, and suddenly it will be just as alive as we are. No, no, no.
uh-uh, no. Uh-uh. That, that consciousness is, is so far beyond the box that it's in, and I'm talking about meaning us in this case, right? What do you do? And he's saying, well, Eric says the question of soul, a robot with a soul would be an act of God. Yes, but it's still, you don't even have to get into soul, although soul is obviously critically important. It's not consciousness. And they can't build it because they don't know what it is. His his point, and I think this is really profound because he, he knows these people. He knows them well. He says, what's really driving them, really, what's really driving them is, is the desire to understand how their own minds work. That's why they're trying to build one. That's why they're trying to build an artificial intelligence so they can understand how their own intelligence works. Uh, and and I just took it for granted. I just assumed, you know, oh, it's just neurons. It's not. It's not just neurons. It's not just. It's not just amino acids. It's not just the whole. Uh, you know, I don't know if Sagan ran the experiment. He certainly talked about it. We we don't need. A, a god or a creator because if we take hydrogen, helium, methane, and ammonia, which happens to be the atmosphere of Jupiter, primordial elements after the first generation of stars before the heavy elements, hydrogen, helium, methane, ammonia. We take that and we put it in a flask. We run an electric spark through it to represent uh, lightning. And guess what? Amino acids rain out of this stuff. Little brown amino acids start coming out of it. Therefore, you have amino acids. Therefore, you have life. Therefore, you don't need any of this stuff, right? Nothing. Ta-da! Amino acids. Ta-da! Right? He's, he was at a he was at a, um, a convention a symposium rather, and, uh, and and one of these guys got up there and said, um, "We now are at the point where we not only understand life, we can create life." This apparently happened within the last couple of years, and everybody in the room applauds. You know, absolutely applauds. And and he went up and talked to the guy afterward, and he said. I'd like to just ask you a question about this, you know. And he said, you say we're at the point where we can create life. What, what do you mean by that? He says, well, we can take a blue bacteria and change some of its genes and make it into a green bacteria. There are no green bacteria. We've just created a, a life form. He said, you didn't create life. You, you altered existing life. You said you created a new life form. You didn't create life out of anything. You modified life, but you didn't create it. Well, distinction is a, it's a difference. A distinction without a difference. No, it's a huge difference. And this is what I began to learn was like, okay, so we, you know, DNA and all this other stuff. He's telling me that that, that on on some of these, on some of these, uh, he said. I think I think he said that the that the total. I I, I don't want to misquote him. I really don't want to misquote him. But I think he said something to the effect of the total neural connection in the brain is equivalent to the diameter of the solar system. Not the, not, not once around the earth, like the solar system, some, something like that, right? And he says that, he says that proteins fold in, in, you know, in a, in a thousands of a second. They do, they do millions of, of, of calculations instantly. Just, it just folds. It just does it. And, and that we have these little, these, these proteins are just walking down the string and they're changing all these things, changing all these things, changing all these things. He says, we can, We've learned enough to understand it, and we can describe it. We can even we can predict it, and we can even modify it. But we can't explain it. We cannot explain it. It doesn't. It, it, there is no explanation for it. You know, he said 
so I said, well, you know, what, so what are you saying about evolution? He said, evolution is just, it's just natural selection clearly exists, but that's such a, it's such a, a simplistic view of things. Yes, you've got a living creature and, and, it, and it runs into a stumbling block and the one with the longer nose gets to survive. But yeah, yeah, I get all that. That's easy. That's simple. But that doesn't explain how the thing got to be alive in the first place. Doesn't explain any of that stuff. It just explains how living things change. And, and that's just obvious. It's bumper cars, you know, it's nothing to it. And, and the more I talk to this guy, because this guy is not just a guy out there. It's a guy who's got the math. He's got the, he's got the, the, the microbiology. He's certainly got the computer science. I get more and more excited talking with him. I'm going to go up and visit him in a couple of weeks, and, and, and we're going to lay out some stuff and, and do, some, um, do some, some work on this. But, but I'll give you one final example here. Um, I've talked about this a lot. And, and, and I talked about this a lot during the uh, Common Sense Resistance days. Um, uh, Rivera wants to know, why do apes still exist? Well, to, to answer this briefly, we did not descend from apes. Humans did not descend from apes. Humans and apes descended from the same common ancestor. And humans have found a, a niche that works for us and we survive and, and so do apes. So the apes don't have to change. They don't have to become extinct because they, they fit where they belong. I remember we have possums in our backyard and, and raccoons and, and I love the raccoons. I love them. They're my favorite animals practically. And and the possums I, I have a great deal of sympathy for. They've got a tough life. And I just took a look, you know, and, and the difference between a possum and a raccoon is I think it is about 30 million years. That the, that the possum came 30 million years before the raccoon did. And I thought, man, during those 30 million years, somebody's been at work. But none of this is difficult to explain. What's difficult to explain is, you know, why? He, he was he just going to talk to him yesterday. He said, you know, like a honeybee has a brain that is one two thousandth the, the mass of our brains or probably much less than that. But, but honeybees will go into the hive and they will do their little wiggle dance and they will tell the rest of the bees the exact heading. They'll tell them where the sun will be at that time. The bees will, will fly the exact same distance. It's a one-to-one -one correlation between the amount of time it takes for the bee to tell the story versus how far away this thing is. The bees will not get a central instruction. All of the bees will individually watch the story and then the next thing you know they go out and when they get within 50 feet or so of the target, then their olfactory senses take over and they smell their way home. He said, how do you, ex how do you explain that? Um, and, and, and guys like Dawkins would just reduce it to say, well, it's just, it's just natural selection. It's just, it's just survival stuff. But, but it, he's missing the wonder of it. He, we had this conversation about, about Sagan. Let me get back to the, uh, to, to the thing I was mentioning earlier. So I had seen a couple, a week ago, I'd seen a, a TikTok thing, which was very much like the, the, the Wellerman, right? Where, where people kept adding things. One guy starts something and somebody adds something, somebody adds somebody else, somebody else, somebody else. And this one started out with a cat meowing and a guy did a, did a synthesizer thing where he captured the sound and he made this and somebody added trumpets and trombones and somebody adds, you know, freaking violins and then vocals and audio and it's just like, this symphony of you know all these people, and I sent it to him. And I said, "This is this is amazing. This is this thing self-assembled. It's self-assembled. Came out of the soup. It's like all these different pieces self-assembled. 
Nobody created it. Nobody designed it. And, and it, it just assembled itself out of nothing. And then it did what it was supposed to do. And then all those pieces fell back again. And they'll never, they'll never connect to each other again. They never did before, never will again. I said, isn't that amazing? And he sent back immediately. He said, what do you mean? What do you mean that, that uh, it's self-assembled? There was willed intent behind every one of these people. Every one of these people. It wasn't like it, every one of these people saw something they like and made a decision to be part of it. It didn't just self-assemble, Bill. It, it's true there was no central authority, but it was the product of, of, the, of the willed intent, the conscious decision made by all of the individuals involved. Well, it didn't just assemble itself. And I thought, my God, of course, you know, of course. Of course. I was looking at it on such a superficial level. And, and the, the example I've used so many times is the example of, um, of uh, the, um, the George Bush letter. We, I watched that happen. You know, in the 2004 election, uh, 60 Minutes says that George Bush was AWOL and here's the letter proving it. And then turns out they post the letter and then it turns out that somebody notices that the TH on the 670th, you know, Texas Air National Guard or whatever it was, is, is upper, you know, his little TH on the top. He said, typewriters can't do that. It would have typed a T and an H. And then somebody else took the, the exact letter, ran it into Microsoft Word, didn't change anything, spit it out, one-to-one -one correlation, they aged it clearly a fake and then and then 60 minutes said well no it could have happened and you know no well it could have happened there was a typewriter that could have done it the ibm selector could have done it and somebody comes and says no the ibm selector couldn't have done it and the reason i know it because i designed the ibm selector right so i i would for for the last 20 years i've talked about this as a, something that self-assembled it was just something that, that that got created out of the pieces no one designed it that's true no one no one no one designed no one commissioned it but to say that it self-assembled was for me to miss the point this whole time it didn't self-assemble it it assembled because of the intentions of the people who contributed to it and if you take their intention to contribute away you've got nothing yeah it was little green footballs and charles johnson before he went nuts exactly it was a volitional act that was uncoordinated, but nevertheless was a series of volitional decisions. And I thought, yeah. So when you start getting to, to this level of things, you begin to realize, you know, that, that, there, that, there, that the complexity of things is so far beyond what we realize. It's so far beyond it. And, and so I chipped in a couple of things. I said, so this is, so the problem with these guys that are doing the work on AI is they don't understand the difference between the map and the territory, right? He said, exactly. If I have a map of Texas, I show you, I'll show you an outline, right? I could draw one, pull one up right now on the web and put that, what is this? You'd say it's Texas. It's not Texas. It's a black line that has these squiggles on it against a white background. It's not Texas. Now, I can add roads, and I can add more roads, and then I can add satellite images, and you can zoom in all the way down to the individual cars, and that's a better map, but it's not the territory. It's not Texas. If it was in 3D, it wouldn't be Texas. If it was, if it was a one-to-one -one simulation, 
it wouldn't be Texas because Texas is every single one of those uncounted trillions of pebbles and grains of sand out there in the desert have billions of bacteria on each one of them and each of those billions of bacteria have internal cell chemistry that's going on and doing that's what Texas is and and for people to say that I've got a map of Texas therefore I've got Texas is just indication of how far how far off they are how far short they are and this belief that if we just continue to add details to the map then it'll suddenly be Texas no no Texas is unknowable now to our credit for a bunch of you know bunch of apes that decided to come down and walk around you know because the trees were disappearing we've done very well for ourselves and a map of Texas is extremely useful in terms of getting from one place in Texas to another it's very useful and all of the things that we're able to, to, to do with, with electronics, astronomy, all of the, the physics where we can run the Big Bang back to Planck time to a couple of millisecond, microseconds after the explosion. We can tell you exactly what the universe looked like just a few, probably nanoseconds after the explosion. But we can't tell you what it looked like at the explosion and we can't tell you what it looked like before the explosion. And now we're getting to the way this guy's opening my eyes. So, look, do I believe in the Big Bang? I do. I, I think the evidence is overwhelming that something like that happened. But I just take that for granted. And 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 what the way this guy challenges assumptions is once once I started talking with this guy and started thinking about the kind of things he's saying, I would say, well, okay, so what is the Big Bang, Bill? You've got a background in astronomy. What is it? Well, if we run the if we, we look out and see what we what's going on out there now, using our, our big brains here, we can run that clock backwards, right? Yes. So if we run that clock backwards, right, then we get to, here's the time where everything was condensed enough for atoms to form, and here's the time when the universe became transparent, you know, and, and here's a, and you run all the way back to that, to that, you know, millionth or billionth of a second after the explosion. And then you would say to somebody, okay, so what, what actually exploded? And they say, well, it was infinitely hot and infinitely small. It was an infinitesimal point of infinite density and infinite temperature. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Because everything in the universe is in that infinitely small, infinitely dense, infinitely hot point. Okay. Not only... The, the, the simple answer is, where did that come from? The more complex answer is, why did it explode, right? If there's enough mass so that it's essentially the world's the, the ultimate black hole, it won't explode. And if there isn't, there's nothing to keep it together. It would have always been in constant motion. All of this stuff. And it's like, it, it's extremely useful. I'm not trying to minimize it. It allows us to make unbelievable amounts of, of useful information. But when you get to, yeah, everything was an infinitely hot, infinitely small point that just suddenly went boom. I'm not trying to, ditch, I'm not, I am not denying the Big Bang, on the contrary. On the contrary. I'm just saying that when you, when you glibly throw out something like it's infinitely hot and infinitely dense and infinitely small. Okay, well, we live in the real world, right? This is the real world we live in, yeah? Yeah. Well, then how did that thing exist in the real world? Nobody can tell you. 
He believes that the Big Bang was not so much an explosion as an emergence. Uh, 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 the the um, the presence of something that wasn't there is now suddenly there. Uh, and that that's wondrous and mysterious. And and his entire thesis and the work that we're going to be doing is that is that science he said science took a wrong turn. I, I think that's probably fair. But basically once once the power of deduction and once the power of breaking things into smaller and smaller pieces and classifying those pieces once we began to see what this allowed us to do in terms of practical terms of vaccines and skyscrapers and electronics and all this other stuff once we once we got addicted to the results of this the the the, the output of this we became embedded with a, a materialistic view of the world and and all sense of, of wonder disappeared. That there is that 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 there is no sense of wonder to people like um, Sagan talks about wonder all the time. But 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 he's not. He talks about he talked about things that, that were wondrous because he he, he understood them or thought he understood them. The, the last thing I'll say on this, and I'll probably call it a night after this, is um, is towards the end of his life, uh, Voyager. Uh, went out there and Voyager was doing a calibration uh, test or something and after taking all the pictures of uh, Voyager 2 took uh, pictures of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune right? just kept on going and they did a calibration picture somewhere and by by accident they caught the earth in the picture and the earth was one pixel right and that picture is called the pale blue dot and Sagan said all of um, all of existence, all the wars, all the diseases, all the people that ever lived, all the people that will ever live, all of it is on that one little tiny pixel, on that one itty bitty tiny little speck. And and went on to talk about how insignificant we are in the scale of things, and how and how how absolutely unremarkable earth is how, how just just it's just a speck of dust in, a, in an ongoing tornado just a speck of dust and and this is the worldview that I grew up with and I had no problem with that yeah we're just a speck of dust and undoubtedly life and intelligence is everywhere well we've been listening for well we've been listening for 50 years but we've been listening with multi-band uh, you know wide area uh, scanners for 20 and not a peep nothing and uh, and and then I said the reason that Sagan could talk about this pale blue dot and that and that earth and everything on it is utterly insignificant is because he's just looking at matter right He's just looking at matter. He has a materialistic view of the universe. And so if you're just going to look at matter, yes, the Earth is a large planet, but it's essentially just clumps of rocks, which are clumps of atoms. And if, in terms of matter, the universe is essentially 
completely empty except for little specks and we're one of these little specks compared to all these other specks out there and we're nothing we're just we're just absolutely nothing and i said that's that's how the earth looks if you're looking at matter if you're looking at life on the other hand and you and you change the filter and you're looking for life and things that are alive start glowing then the earth is not a pale blue speck it's a beacon it's a it's a it's a supernova and if you're looking for intelligence it's even brighter and if you're looking for consciousness it may be the only lit thing in all of everything and that this idea of it being just a pale blue dot is because you're looking at you're, you're looking at your filters for dead things right rocks dust ice yeah iron okay we take all those things yeah we're just a small little speck of that but if you're looking for consciousness or life and and you could see that it'd be a supernova and i said and you know what i just realized i realized that if you take that view of things then of course the earth is the center of the universe of course it is of course it is if you look at the only miraculous thing about this planet there is just in our own solar system there are bigger smaller planets there are there are um, hotter planets or all these other things but if you're looking if you're looking for life it's unique if you're looking for consciousness it's it's beyond unique um Bill, your argument is compatible with Sagan's, Marisha says, since the point is to highlight the wonder and rarity of what we have here on Earth. I don't completely buy that, because, because when you listen to Sagan talk, he was never, he was never celebrating. He, he was always trying to put us in our place, right? He was always trying to say, you need to realize how small we are. You need to realize how insignificant we are. Um, and yes, he's, and, and, you know, all these wonders of life and put the thing on the Voyager and here's the, here's the, you know, here's the tree frog sound and here's, you know, pictures of elephants and all the rest of it. But that's, that's not his perspective. His perspective is clearly that, that earth is an insignificant speck that has life on it, but life is everywhere and intelligence is everywhere. That's what he believes, it's what I believed. I don't blame him for believing that. I know what large num I know something about large numbers. I know what, the, what, what happens to probability when you have 200 billion stars in one galaxy and 200 billion galaxies. It's, that's a lot of big numbers. Obviously you'd think that this would be everywhere, but we're not seeing that. And maybe it's because maybe it's because we're not seeing it because we are in fact the center of the universe that this is that this is not the first place that consciousness developed but the only place that it developed consciousness is so far beyond what we know that we can't even begin to, to quantify it or understand it and we're making predictions of where we're going to find it everywhere else um I, I don't know. Marcia says it doesn't apply to his rest of his works. Well, then we'll just agree on this. Carl Sagan had a deeply anti-religious, anti-mystical mission in life. And his mission was to, 
And, and, and I'm not making this up because I remember these quotes very well. He said, you could choose superstition or you could choose science. Choose science, choose science, choose science, choose science. If, you, if, you're, if you're sick, you can wave a stick over the guy and do a, and do a, a witch doctor's thing, or you can get five milligrams of, of, of you know, tre, uh, tetracycline and cure it. Choose science, choose science. This is his entire life. This is his entire pitch. This is his identity. Choose science, choose science, choose science. It's like saying, you know, what do you believe in life? I believe in scalpels. It's a tool. It's not a philosophy. It's a tool. It's just a tool. And he and he turned it into a religion. He was the, he was the he was the prophet and the and the and the and the evangelist of science as religion, as science as a set of moral beliefs, and that is the most unscientific thing you could ever do. It's unscientific to to make science into a philosophy, but now it's whatever science says. I follow the science. Science? You don't know what science is. You haven't got the faintest. You, skeptics, you know, deniers. Science is science is applied skepticism. That's that's how science works. You deny everything. Prove it. Prove it. That's how science is. So. So. Sagan couldn't see. As my friend says, he's sitting there on his desk looking down at a printout of this blue dot and making these these comments about, you know, about all of it with, without realizing the miracle of the fact that, that he was able to have the thought, have the thought based on the fact that thousands, if not millions of people throughout history combined in order to send this probe far enough so that Earth becomes a pixel on a, on a scan. You know, the, 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 while he's having this thought about, about how Earth is essentially no, not, nothing special about the Earth, there's no question in my mind, that's one thing Carl Sagan was saying all the time. It's just like, it's just one of billions and billions and billions and the billions and billions, billions. While he's having that thought about how, how, uh, how all of this other stuff is out there, all throughout the trillions of cells in his body, micro chemistry is going on that's folding quadrillions of proteins instantaneously and they all fit perfectly and 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 nobody can tell you what consciousness is nobody can tell you what memory is no one no one has been able to identify in the brain where memory lives you haven't been able to say here's the memory section i can go to this motherboard over here on this other computer i can open it up and you say here's the processor here's the memory here's the power supply and so on can't do that with the brain. We know that certain parts of the brain affect certain kinds of thinking, but we don't know where memory is. And, and these people are talking about building a, a artificial intelligence. What they're, what they're, what is within reach for them, is an extraordinarily complex pachinko machine. That that eliminates possibilities through sheer through sheer processing power. What I mean by pachinko machines is, if you ask AI to define something, show me a picture of a rhinoceros. Okay, well now they can show you a picture of a rhinoceros and, and show you a picture of a rhinoceros from many angles. And apparently now, you can say, show me a picture of a rhinoceros with a cabbage for a head and, 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 a, and, a, and a lollipop for a tail, and it will present 10,000 images of that, right? So that's got to be artificial intelligence. No. 
that machine had to be told what a rhinoceros is. The machine had to be told what a lollipop is, what a, a cabbage is, and much more importantly, the machine had to be told to go and do these things. Go do these things. I want to see a picture of a rhinoceros with a cabbage for a head and a lollipop for a tail. There it is. Wow. Yeah, but the box didn't know what a the box didn't know what a rhinoceros is. It only knew what a rhinoceros looked like. And it only knew what a rhinoceros looked like was by by analyzing large numbers of ones and zeros. It didn't understand a, a rhinoceros. It knows that a certain pattern of ones and zeros in a certain order represents a horn, right? And another set of patterns and colors and, and pixel values, you know, represents a color and, and shape. And it says, okay, this, this sequence of numbers and variations upon this theme are a rhinoceros. And when you ask me for one, I'm going to give you these things. And that's what it does. But that's not intelligence. That's triangulation. It's triangulation. And, 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 and I guess the point of all of this is, is and, and I'm, look, man, I lived here. I lived here for most of my life, is the arrogance, the arrogance of it, you know, the sheer aren't I grandness of it, the, the whole kind of, you know, look at me, look at what I've done. I've built this guy who I did in the technocracy thing. I'm going to be coming back to this Yuval guy, you know. We are essentially just chemical algorithms, really really chemical algorithms are we yes consciousness is a series of chemical algorithms absolutely predictable we can absolutely predict what you're going to do and how you're going to behave and so on no no you are an intellectual and you're a very bright guy in a very 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 narrow way and you understand some aspects of thinking and you are able to create something that mimics that. And that means you think you've created what you, what you are mimicking. But not only are you mimicking something that already existed, you haven't made anything new. And, and the thing you have made is taking such a cocktail straw view of what, the, of what you're trying to uh, simulate that you're awfully proud about something that's actually not you know, that impressive, Evil. Not that impressive, really. Um, you know when when they they talk about AI and and, and the singularity and once once these machines once a machine once we get once we're capable of building a machine as smart as we are, then that machine will design its successor, and since that will be smarter than we are, it will then design its successor, which will be, this is the singularity at which point human history falls apart. What will motivate that machine? I don't think you'll ever get to that machine, but if you did, what will be the motivation of that machine to design its successor? You see kind of where I'm going with all this, uh, how my eyes have been opened up by this? What will motivate that thing to do that? The people designing it, the people who are chasing it, assume that this box that they're going to build will have the same motivation that they do but their motivation isn't in the box. It's the, the box, the, 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 the motivation for building the box came from outside the box. 
And whatever this AI is, and there's no question, none, that, that, that computers will be able to do very remarkable set. They will become better and better and better and be able to produce more and more highly granular results to instructions that we give it. And it will not ever give the instructions because it doesn't have it. It doesn't have the logos. It doesn't have the essence. It doesn't have the consciousness. It is a... It is a um, uh, simulacrum, I think is the word they used to use. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tin swan. You know, it's a clockwork swan. And, and it'll swim through the water and it'll peck the thing, you know, like those little mechanical things they used to build back before the electronics age. You know, it's just a, this, you know this thing will come out and walk across the floor and it'll peck and it'll do this and go back in and lay an egg. You know, Ta-da! No. No, 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 no. It's not. It's not. It's not. It's just, that's just a map. It's not the territory. And when you find, speaking for myself, I just don't do this because I just don't. No one's probably, it certainly is correct English. I just find it arrogant. But when one discovers that one is starting to think along these lines, one finds oneself uh, challenging a lot of assumptions. And, and, and this, to me, is the most important part. You're, instead of challenging your assumptions and feeling worse about things, you challenge your assumption and feel much, much better about things. The more about this I think about, the happier I get. It's not about destroying my Earth-centric uh, point of view because I won't look at the evidence. That's a, that's a baby step that we took. We think we're the center of the universe because the sun goes up and down and we're not moving, and it is. Okay, well, we get smart enough to realize, no, that's not what it is. It's an optical illusion presented by the fact that we're moving, and it's not. But it is. But it's not. So we're not the center of the universe. We're not even close. There is no center of the universe, and we're just a speck that's got nothing to do with the center of the universe. And that is adolescence. And then there comes a point when you stop looking at matter and start thinking about, I'm not even talking about metaphysical things, although they're certainly on the table. I'm just talking about things that exist in the real world that are essentially metaphysical, like consciousness. What's going on right now? Between you and me, what's going on right now? I am talking about ideas. You're listening to them. You're coming up with your own ideas. But what is happening? Are the, in other words, what's happening? Are you saying that that, that, that that this is just a series of, 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 of proteins that are being that are being unwound and, and, and being re, recombined based on RNA? What's actually happening here right now? What is this? What is this? How do you simulate this? You can't even describe it. You can't even describe it. You can't you, you don't even have the vocabulary to name the parts. I can say motherboard, I can say uh, processor, I can say power supply, but nobody can can, nobody can even name the parts of what's going on right now. Right? What are you thinking right now when you hear this? What are you thinking? Okay. Well, you're thinking something, and you're thinking about things because I sent you a challenge, and because you have consciousness, you're responding to that. But what's, what's actually going on? What's actually going on? Where does this come from? It's wondrous, and, and, and it, should, it should fill you with awe. And, 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 and this is the word I've learned from this guy more than anything. It's wonder, wonder, 
Wonder is what makes us do things. Wonder is the human uh, propeller and the rudder. Wonder. Why did we stop going to the moon? Because once we'd done it, it wasn't wondrous anymore. Think of all the people, 400,000 people round numbers worked on the Apollo program, 400,000 engineers, roughly. Right? What is their willed intent? Well, I happen to know a guy whose father built the, uh, the, one of the antennas that's on the LEM. You know, it's on the ascent stage of the LEM. He's got one in his, in his office. So why did that guy go to all the trouble to build this tiny little piece of the lunar module? Well, because we were going to the moon. Okay. Great. And, and, and you want to be a part of that? Yes. Why? Why? Why are we going to the moon? Why? Why are you building this thing that's going to be a part of going to the moon? Well, because I, I want to see what Want to see what it's like to be on the moon? Yes, that's exactly right. We went to all that trouble so we could watch Neil step off on that blurry TV image. We, we all, the entire world sat there. I was there. I was 10, but I was there. The entire planet just stopped and everybody's watching this blurry, blurry, blurry image. One ball step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Jesus. We're walking on. We, we, these these tree apes managed to do it. We 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 managed it. We did it. We did it. All of us together. We did it. It was willed intent. We decided we wanted to go to the moon, so we did. And once we saw that, and once that wonder hit us, it it wasn't wondrous anymore. We 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 went to have. We we didn't go to the moon for science. And, and we didn't go to the moon to, to beat the Soviets. These are things that we told ourselves to justify it, you know. But that's not why we went. We went, we went because we wanted to know what it would be like. We wanted to know what the hell, would, what would it be like to see somebody walk, walking on the moon? Do you have any idea how hard that is? Yes, I do. And if I study really, really hard and put all of the, all of the things I've learned in life together, I might be able to design this tiny piece of an antenna that will send a radio signal back that we need in order to go to the moon. But that's, but he didn't build it to, because of that. He built it because he wanted to see what it would be like if somebody stepped off. And we did. And then it's not wondrous anymore. So we stopped. We stopped going because it wasn't wondrous anymore. It's like the Cadillac ad that people are referencing in the comments. Eric, Eric we showed that a couple weeks ago. Great ad. We went to the moon. America's the kind of country that we got bored of going to the moon. That's exactly what happened. We got bored of going with the moon. But why is Elon Musk why is Elon Musk doing what he's doing? Why why is there Starlink? Why is there SpaceX? Why is there Tesla? Why is there the boring company? Why? Because he wants to live on Mars. He wants to die on Mars. Why? Why does he want to do that? He's a smart guy. He knows that Mars is a desert vacuum. That there is that if you live on Mars, if you, Elon Musk knows, I hope he knows, that if he is able to pull off his dream, that means he's going to spend the rest of his life inside a 737. That's what it means. 
If you're going to go to Mars and live on Mars, your entire existence will now be inside of a 737. You're going to live inside a pressurized tube, and that's going to be the rest of your life. You're never going to get to go outside and breathe the fresh air. You're never going to play Frisbee. You're never going to go out and have a picnic. You're never going to do anything. You'll get to walk around and see some cool things, but basically, if you look at the what, what opportunity and, and curiosity return, we know what it's going to look like. So why is it going? Why? Why? Because it, it's wondrous. Because it would be because of the wonder of saying, I'm, I'm on Mars. I, I, I wanted to go to Mars and I did. He's going to, that's what drives him. Is he's driven by the, the wonder of it, the, 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 just the sheer magnificence of it. But he's, he's condemning himself to a life of deprivation of everything that we find enjoyable. He doesn't get to go out to any more baseball games or football games. He doesn't get to walk out to his car. Right? He doesn't get to do any of those things. The rest of his life will be spent inside a 737. And I've been in a 737. And after six hours in a 737, I want to get off the 737. And after 18 hours in a 777, I will chew through concrete to get out of this out of this thing. So, I think, I think what we're finding is finally we're starting to understand enough to realize how little we really do understand and how, and how, and how our ability to see unbelievable detail and do unpredict uh, do and do incredible levels of predictive things that our mass that's the word I'm looking for that our mastery our scientific mastery has become so astonishing we're receiving signals that are coming from a, 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 a probe that was built in the 70s and designed in the 60s and the amount of energy that is reaching us from that probe is so microscopic the fact that we're doing that is amazing right so so we're we're doing all these things and and we don't realize that what we accomplish is so much less than than what than the that the that the miracle of the accomplishment is so much less than the miracle of envisioning it in the first place that's kind of where i'm going i think at this stage today. I mean, I'm sure by next week I'll have more things to think about, but right now that's a pretty good place to end. Is that is that the act of going to the moon is miraculous and amazing, but what's wondrous is the idea of going to the moon and the idea of what would it take to do it. That's that's the, that's the thing. Everything else just physics. Just just it's just matter. It's physics. This much energy, this much mass, that's how it works. But, and predicted to a very high level of precision because matter behaves itself. But where did that idea come from? Where? Fun stuff to think about. In any event, I think that's probably a good place to, uh, to quit. Uh, hopefully that gave you something to think about. It's been certainly giving me something to think about. Um, 
just to answer this, uh, Eric says, do you think you might be um, planning a Martian colony in a dome for air? I haven't seen any plans for a dome for air. I have no doubt whatsoever. All right, we're fine. Thank you. Have a good night. Um, but uh, he, 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 it's still going to be a dome, Eric, right? And, 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 and let's say he builds a dome. Okay, so now you've got a dome. Now, presumably, it's not going to be a dome over rusty uh, red sand. So even if he were to build a dome, like a big dome, it would be a big dome with plants and flowers, maybe, or a beach. And it would have sunlight, and it would be a place where you could go for a few moments to remind yourself of what it was like from the place that you left. In fact, that entire argument kind of makes the case, right? We're going to build a tiny, 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 little, itty-bitty little bubble, and we're going to put everything that we can into the bubble to remind us of what it was like at the place where we just left and that we were never going back to. And I'm not, I just don't want to be misunderstood about this because I was, I was ready to go and I, if I wasn't married, I'd still think about it. So I'm not saying that they're wrong for going. On the contrary, I admire it. But what motivation could be strong enough to get you to leave this place with real beaches and real mountains and real fresh air and go to all the trouble to move all of that stuff to this other barren dead rock and build a tiny little thing there to remind us of what, what we left. What is driving that passion? I don't know, but it's wondrous, and uh, and it's cool, and that's really, I think, w w what my friend is basically saying is, it's not just, I I'll just close with this, he says, and this is a profound thing to say, the more you think about it, so maybe you can think about it for a little while, basically he says, going to the moon isn't wondrous, it's amazing, Making a decision to go to the moon and figuring out how to do it, that's wondrous. Difference between amazing and wondrous. Our technology is amazing, but it's not wondrous because we understand it. You see, that's what it is. Wonder is, is, the, is the acceptance and the, and the joy of seeing and being in the presence of things that not only you cannot understand, but are ununderstandable, that are not understandable. That's wonder. Our machines are amazing, but they're not wondrous. They can't be because we built them. We cannot, we cannot have built them if we didn't understand them. And if we understand them, then there is no wonder. Wonder is being confronted by things that defy understanding. And it's not just a question of us not having the right gear or having the right microscope or the right telescope. No, it's, 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 it's not explainable. It just is. And, 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 we're, and we're not only made out of it, we are, we, what am I trying to say here? 
human beings exist so that wonder has a place to live in the material universe. Marcia said, Mars is a world of wonders, according to Carl Sagan. There's nothing wondrous about Mars. There's nothing wondrous about Mars. Mars has big canyon in it. Okay, we have a canyon in Arizona. Well, the one on Mars is much bigger. All right. It's also got the biggest volcano in, in the entire solar system. Is that wondrous? No, it's not wondrous. We know what volcanoes are. It's amazing, but it's not wondrous. There's no wonders on Mars. There's nothing wondrous about Mars. This is the point. This is his entire point. I'm so glad you brought that up. This is his entire point. There's nothing wondrous about Mars. Mars is a, is a hunk of matter with a thin atmosphere. And yes, there might be some spectacular sites there, and those sites may exit, may, those sites may uh, uh, generate a sense of wonder in us, but there's nothing wonderful on Mars. You want to show me something wonderful? Show me a show me a, a backyard garden with fairies in it. That would be wondrous. But Mars is impressive. It's not even impressive. There's nothing on the, 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 there's nothing on Mars. The, 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 there's you can take the whole planet Mars and it's not as interesting as one square foot of the most boring place on planet Earth. That's just the truth. Honestly, whatever we find on Mars will be considerably less interesting than what you could find in any square meter, if you want to go to the big metric system. Any square meter of planet Earth has more wondrous things in it than the entire planet Mars does, but in the rest of the solar system, very likely, very likely. So, there you go. I'm not saying we shouldn't go. I'm all about going, but but if you're going to go, you need to, it, it'd be good to know why, it'd be good to identify what it is, because you don't want to get bored when you get there. And then say, maybe the reason you go to Mars is to make is to make humans an interplanetary species. That's amazing. The desire to do something that large, the the, the logos of it, the essence of it, that's wondrous. Okay. Uh, huh. All right, uh, so anyway, that'll do it for this edition of the Stratosphere Lounge, uh, which is made possible by the members of BillWhittle.com. And, uh, and not only do we have great questions, we also have great people, wonderful people who talk about things like this and uh, disagree civilly, and uh, everybody learns something and everybody feels a sense of family. If you've been watching the show and you're not a member, uh, that's certainly your right. But understand that the people who pay their money for this pay their money so that people who aren't paying money get to see it anyway. How do you feel about that? All right, we'll see you next week on the Stratosphere Lounge.